please ask you to state and spell your first and last name. Uh, it's Tanya Medlin, T-A-N-I-A. -A. Last name is M-E-D-L-I-N. And Ms. Medlin, why don't, why don't we have you take your mask all the way off just while you're testifying? And there is water there if you want any. Okay. Uh, but whenever the state's ready. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, Ms. Medlin. I'm, yep, I'm over here. <laughs> um, and Ms. Medlin, I can see from your jacket a little bit, but how are you currently employed? Uh, I'm a certified dietary matter with Prestige Care. Um, and so do you work as a, a chef? Uh, kitchen manager. I do nutritional assessments, uh, interview patients. I oversee a team. Okay. And uh, prior to this uh, location, where did you work previously? Avamir Health Serv Systems. Um, and where is that? Um, their corporate office is in Wilsonville, but I worked at the Beaverton location. Uh, and were you doing the same sort of thing that you're doing now? Yes. All right. And um, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, Dan and Nancy Brophy. Are, were you friends with them? Yes. And collectively, how long have you known them? A long time. 25, 30 years. Okay. Um, and let's kind of take each of them. We'll start with Dan Brophy. How did you meet Dan Brophy? And what context did you know him? I met him briefly at the culinary school as an instructor and then later became friends with him through his wife, Nancy. Okay. And so would that have been Western culinary at the time? I believe it was Western culinary. It hadn't transferred over yet. To Le Cordon Bleu? Correct. Okay. And so did you attend culinary school there? I did. Okay. And I went 89 to 90. Okay. And he was one of your instructors? No, he was not. He was just an instructor? He came after I graduated. Gotcha. All right. Um, and so then did you kind of lose touch with him until you got reacquainted after knowing Nancy Brophy? Uh, I, it's not that we got reacquainted. I didn't, let me be clear. I didn't, I knew of him in the culinary world. He was another chef. I didn't formally meet him and become friends with him until him and Nancy. All right. And so how did you meet Nancy Brophy? Nancy was my roommate when she went to culinary school. She went to Western after I'd graduated and I usually went through housing to get my roommates and they would, you know, match us up with people. And so I believe Nancy came to me from, I want to say Colorado. She moved in with me. And how long were the two of you roommates? Um, a year, about a year. And so that would have been in the early nineties. Uh, it was either 91 to nine, 90 to 91 or 91 to 92 or somewhere right in there. It was right. It was after I graduated. All right. And um, after you and Ms. Brophy were roommates, did you, I take it you stayed friends? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, how would you describe, you know, your friendship and what capacity to see each other on occasion? Good friends? Nancy, for a long, long, long time, I, somebody I looked up to, somebody I, you know, she was one of my closest, dearest friends. I worked for her in her catering company. And when I didn't have a job, she gave me one. When she needed a chef, I found an excuse to go work for her. So, yeah. And so how long did that uh, continue? The entire time she had her business? Off or? and on for the better of 12 years, probably. So kind of in between, if you yeah. if she needed help or you needed a job, you'd find your way And it there. wasn't just the catering company. I worked over at the Novitiates, too, the Jesuit priests, so, which also crossed with Dan. Okay. And so then when did Dan, you get to know Dan Brophy better or them as a couple? Well, I, I got to know Dan Brophy way better once he came to work for me at Avamir. 
because we were, you know, eight hours a day on top of each other. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. When was that? Okay, so 18, 17. I want to say worked for me for about a year and a half. I want to say started in 2016. Okay, um, and like I said, we'll jump back. I, to that I could be. It, I could be. It, it could have been a little bit later, maybe. I don't know. It was like two, I was there for six and a half years. He worked for me for about a year and a half. Okay, prior to his death. Correct. Okay. Um, and so in the time when um, Nancy and Dan Brophy entered into a relationship and then got married, um, did you stay friends with Nancy during that whole period? Oh, yeah. Okay. And so how often would you see either just Nancy or Nancy and Dan? What did that relationship look like? We'd have the occasional dinner, go to their place. They'd come to our place. Um, Nancy and I did a lot more together than Dan and I did, obviously. Um, coffee, we go to coffee. I'd call her if I had, you know, fighting with my husband, I'd call her and, you know, ah, you know, whine and cry. And she'd be like, it's not a battle you want to pick. So, yeah, no, it was, we, you know, there was also, you know, a, a, a year or two that we probably didn't talk. And that wasn't for any other reason other than I'm busy, she's busy. But we never missed a beat. You know, those friends that get together and you just were what you were. You just don't miss a beat. So. And um, and did you stay that way even as she and Dan got married? Sounds like. Oh, yeah. The, the couples did things together. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't every week or every month. It was, you know, a few times a year. And um, did you know Dan Brophy through the culinary world before he came to work at Avamir? I knew of him. Okay. From the, the fish house, Cooch Street Fish House. Okay. Um, and so uh, the real way you knew him was through Nancy and anything you did as a... Well, Nancy, but students from the school and other chefs from the culinary team, because I was part of the Oregon culinary team, and, you know, they worked at the school. They worked with Dan. So was there a fair overlap in the culinary world? Sort We're of? all connected. We're okay. all... It's like the military. We're all brothers. Okay. All right. And um, talking specifically about Nancy Brophy, um, over the years in your conversations with her, it sounds like you um, were aware of her catering business and worked at that at times. Yes. And um, do you recall when she sold that or that she sold that business? Oh, I know she sold it, but I, I'm trying to remember what I, I know that I know that she sold it because I remember driving over the Russell Island Bridge and seeing the name of it. And I went, did you move? No, I sold it. It was that conversation. Okay. So. And do you recall what she did after that? Um, immediately after? I have no idea. I don't know. But I know that eventually she was doing life insurance. And did she talk to you about that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She started my policy. Um, and so did she, for just you, you and your husband? Me and my godson. Okay. Um, and do you, did she talk to you about like how many policies you should have, give you advice? No, she gave me advice. Of course. Yeah. She got, she gave me a, I'm enrolled in a very good policy. I have a universal life and my godson's is good too. And they're both doing well. So, but yeah, no, I, that's the only policy I have. Okay. And did she talk to you ever about, uh, her own policies or Anything like that? Well, yeah, of course. In, in, in describing how it works and how the system works and how policies work and the fact that um, 
Nancy and my husband are the same age. You know, policies for my husband. My husband's also former military. So, yeah, there was, and, you know, she keeps this amount of insurance on her and her husband, you know, thinking about Dan and Medicare, moving into that field. You should think about this for you guys. And, yeah. And do you recall, did she ever tell you, like, how much life insurance they had or how many policies? She told me that they had the exact amount on each other. That that was a smart that that was smart when you're homeowners, and you know my husband and I have 20 years between us, and if something happens to me, he's taken care of. If something happens to him, I don't lose the house. Um, and as she's talking to you about all this, is she also kind of? It sounds like you had pretty extensive conversations. Oh about yeah, the I, business. yeah. And were you sort of interested in in that in the yeah, yeah? There was a point where I actually was doing online classes to to get into the insurance world when I, because I had had back surgery. So I had to step out of the food world for about a year and a half because of my back. And, um, I actually went with her to North Carolina. Okay. On a insurance a conference. Okay. All right. And did you ever end up going through with that or did you stay back? In no, I ended up landing a really good, they got a headhunter called me and said, we got you a chef job and I went right back to it. Okay. All right. Um, and um, in the conversations you had with Nancy, either during that period or in later years, did she ever talk to you about beyond life insurance? Obviously it sounds like you guys talked about some details about that. Did Nancy ever talk to you about their financial situation? No, no. Ever talk to you about, uh, any issues with the mortgage or anything like that? No. Uh, if she had talked to you about that kind of stuff, um, would you have been able to give advice or assistance? I would have done whatever I could to help her and Dan. Is that the kind of thing you would have talked to her about? Oh, yeah. With my, my life? Oh, yeah. I, they, I, if anybody knows me, knows I can't keep my mouth shut. All right. Um, and then talking specifically about Dan Brophy, um, so you mentioned that he came to work with you at Avamir. Correct. And it sounds like about a year and a half before his death. Yes. Okay, so maybe sometime late 2016, Early yeah, he's, he was there about a year and a half. Okay. Um, and how did that come to be? Well, again, just like I did with roommates, I called the school and I didn't, wasn't getting anywhere because I usually call and say, I send me a student, I need a body. And they just didn't have anybody at the time. And so then I always go to my next connection, which is who do I know in the chef world? So I called Nancy and hey, can you ask Dan, does he have a student that's looking for work? Because when I worked over in Milwaukee, at a different convalescent facility, he had sent me a student that was struggling. And if she came and worked for me, he gave her a set, you know, he gave me a list of what she had achieved and he would let her pass his class, but it was like extra credit for her. And because she was a student that was struggling. And so she came and she worked for me, she did a phenomenal job and she passed. And so, you know, I would call Nancy periodically and go, if I need staff, and it didn't matter what job, it could, even when she had her catering company, it would be like, hey, I need somebody, do you have anybody extra? because we kind of do that in the world of food. And I said, do you know anybody, does Dan have any students looking for work? And she said, well, what do you need? I told her, I said, I need somebody who not only is interested in food, but somebody that cares about the rehab end of it and wants to do better for the patient because it's a quality of life issue. And I said, it's not just about slapping food out. And I said, we're also gonna be moving into the ITSY Global Standard Diets down the road, and I need somebody who wants to learn that, and that's a whole other thing. 
And she said, well, what's the pay? I told her it depends anywhere between, you know, 17 and 20 an hour, depending on how knowledge they were. And she said, well, I'll send you Dan. And I said, Dan, Dan don't want to come work for me. And she says, yeah, Dan loves, Dan, this is something, you know, Dan has extra time on his hand. I said, well, if you think he wants a job, send him on over. And yeah, he showed up the next day. All right. And then worked for, for you from Well, we on. talked about the job and I told him what I needed and I told him what I expected. And I was honestly, in all fairness, I was kind of like, he's my level, if not above. So he's going to come work for me. So I was kind of, you know, are you sure? You know, because it, you know, there's egos there. And I was like, and he was like, yeah, no. And he came in and he fit right in. The crew loved him. He did a great job. He was a great chef. He's amazing. And uh, how often did he work? Did it vary? or It did. It totally varied. When he worked weeks during the school, he worked weekends and nights for me. And when he worked uh, during the week at the school, he did weekends. For, he did the opposite. When he worked during the week at the school, he did weekends and nights and vice versa. Right. And so we've heard some uh, testimony about this, but it sounds like, was that like on a a set amount of time that it would rotate like several weeks at a time. And it, it was switch. honestly, it was like every six months. It was about every six months. And he was pretty good about telling me, Hey, I need, you know, he was there about a year and a half. And I think he took two vacations. He went on and they weren't long. One was a week and one was uh, just a few days, but yeah, he was very, very good about his schedule. And he would always say to me, um, I'd be like, Hey, can you cover and talk to management? Which meant call Nancy. So, all right. And so then between, it sounds like maybe the three of you, you were able to get a schedule worked out pretty oh, yeah. consistently. Yeah. Okay. Um, and like how many hours was he working? How many days a week? He worked honestly two to three. And if I had a call in and I called him, sometimes he came in again. Sounds like always available if he could be. He was. We have a, a union at that job. We had a union and there was an extra $6.50 an hour if you showed up for an unscheduled shift. So if I had one and I called him, he would come in, especially if, you know, it was something he could do. And um, did, did you, would you call him directly or it sounds like sometimes you would call Nancy to get If that? I couldn't get a hold of him, I'd call her because sometimes he doesn't answer his phone because, you know, he's busy cooking, picking whatever he's doing. He, yeah, he don't live by his phone in his hand. And so then you would call, reach out oh, to Nancy. Yeah, like, and, Nancy, can you and, track him down? Okay. And <laughs> would you him? be able to get a hold of her? Yeah. All right. Um, and when you were working out scheduling issues, did you deal with Dan or did you deal with Nancy? Well, I always dealt with Dan first because he's the employee. But if he said to me, if he used the sentence, you need to talk to management, I would then call Nancy. So, but yeah, no, I always went through Dan first because he was the employee. And it sounds like from what you said earlier that as Dan started working at Avamir, you got to know him personally a bit better. Yes. Um, and you talked to him more. Yeah, because... He always had a dry sense of humor. So honestly, in the beginning, I thought he didn't like me. And I'd be like, what's the matter with this guy? And Nancy says, it's just a sense of humor. And so then I'd kind of poke around it. And then eventually, you know, he realized he, she, of course, said something to him. But he realized that I was like on edge because he's a chef, too. And I certainly don't want to step on his toes. But I also want to connect with him on a different level here at work. And so he started doing things like he knew I liked the Grateful Dead. He knew I liked, you know, that classic 70s rock. So if I was, you know, mad stomping around the kitchen about whatever, he'd start singing. And he'd always pick one at something that he knew I liked. And I look over him and he's trying, and he 
did his best not to smile. Like he had to smirk. I don't know. It was just this brophy look. And you just knew, okay, yeah, he's okay. All right. Um, as you got to talk to him more, did he talk to you about like personal stuff or more? It, it depends. He didn't like come out and talk to me about personal things, but if I said something to him, asked him a question, he would certainly give me an example or lead into something. So yeah, we'd sort of, but not, not him, you know, he didn't start it. Over time, did it get where you oh, yeah. could ask him more and he'd yeah. be more forthcoming? Yeah. Did he ever talk to you? Did he ever talk to you about their financial situation or anything like that? No, not, no, we never really talked money. It was more food. There was a conversation about his son. There was, you know, things like that. Um, and it sounds like he was, you've described kind of his schedule, his ability to come in. He was a pretty consistent guy. Oh, yeah. Um, what about in terms of like his sort of everyday approach to things? Was he, it sort of always the same? Did yes. Did he do things differently? What no, would he you... was, he was, I swear the man should have been in the military. He was exactly the same. This is what he did. And he always put his knife kit in the same spot. He always put his tea in the same spot. You know, when he was done with his cutting board, his knives were laid a certain way. He was very serious about that. Other things like personal items or things that you always put in the same places? Yes. Yes. Like what? Like, like his knife kit, like his jacket, like his, he didn't just throw things. He would put it in the same spot every day. So. Yeah. What about um, like personal belongings when he came to work? Money, wallet, keys, things like that. His money was never in his wallet. That's a brophy thing. He always kept his, he was right-handed, so he kept his small bills in his right pocket and his big bills in his left because he was always wheeling and dealing things for the food carts. He always wore cargo pants, you know, the pockets on the side, and he always kept his money there. He Because I've, I've, I have asked him for change, and he never pulls, he's never pulled out his wallet. Like, can you break a 20? <laughs> he's digging in his pockets. Yeah, he never kept money in his wallet. Not that I have never, ever seen. Um, and what about like timing, parking? Was he kind of always on time? Always on time, if not early. If he was late, I usually knew in advance. And it was usually because he got held up at school. Um, but yeah, and he always parked in the back parking lot. Um, and so it sounds like sometimes he, was there overlap between working at Avamir and working at Sometimes, school? yeah, sometimes. And sometimes, you know, my, my PM cook shift started earlier, but Dan was really good at what Dan did. And he didn't need to come in at 1230. He could come in at two o'clock every day and put dinner out by 530 and clean up and go home and be done by seven. So he was a labor budget dream. So because of his skill set and experience, yes. faster and more efficient than oh, yeah. someone newer? Yeah. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, it sounds like he was willing to kind of jump in and work quite a bit if needed. Yeah. He was a great guy. He was a great help. A good employee. Did he ever talk to you? Did Dan specifically ever talk to you about retirement? Um, no, not retirement so much, but he, I never really, we talked about mushrooms. He, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to, you know. He loved hunting mushrooms, and he wanted more time for that. He never indicated to you that he needed to slow down at Avamir or anything no. like that? No. Anything related to the stop teaching or anything at the Culinary oh, Institute? He loved his students. No. That was the one thing you could get him talking about was we uh, had an employee who went out fishing, came back with a bunch of trout, 
apparently doesn't eat fish, comes into the kitchen and says, hey, boss, you want some trout? Sure, I'll take some trout. Dan, what do I do with this? Let's smoke it. Like, it was his thing. He loved anything new. Yeah. Um, and what about Nancy Brophy? Did she ever talk to you about retirement? Yeah. Yeah. And what did she tell you about? Uh, she, she talked about them traveling, but they, they have tried. They traveled, you know, they spent, God, I don't know, six, eight weeks, something like that in the Orient. Brought me back a whole bunch of things. It was kind of cool. Um, I know that he really, he had a, he had a really good knowledge of that type of cuisine and which I have none. That's not my background. And so anytime that would happen at work, he, he was the go-to guy and like, he loved it. He loved that type of cuisine. So I know that he liked traveling. I know because, and I think he liked traveling. And what he said to me was he enjoyed learning about the different cuisines in different places. That's what I know. Cause that's what he said. And, um, did Nancy ever talk to you about a plan for retirement specifically or next steps? Well, she had said that um, they had planned um, on eventually downsizing because they didn't need such a big house. You know, um, they talked about, or she talked to me about um, that just that, yeah, that they had talked, to, or she had told me that they had planned on downsizing the house and retiring and getting something smaller so they didn't have to take care of so much. Why don't we take our, our morning break and be back on the record at 10 till 11. And if you'd like to continue. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, and Ms. Medlin, right before the break, um, I think that we were talking about uh, sort of uh, what Nancy told you about plans for the future. You mentioned a plan to downsize. Um, did she tell you any, give you any specifics about what that looked like? Not definite answers, no. Just, you know, smaller place to live, you know, they, that they wanted to travel. No, like, clear specifics on, like, what, how they, what they were going to do with the house they lived in, where they would move, anything like that? Well, they, they talked about a lot of things, but nothing was, this is what we're doing. Okay. And did you ever get the impression that they were going to like move away or it sounds like you're saying stay there, but travel. They, they talked about both or should, I should say Nancy and I talked that they talked about both. Okay. So Nancy told you that she and Dan had talked about Correct. stuff. You didn't talk to Dan about this. No. All right. Um, <laughs> um, and sticking with conversations that you'd had with Nancy um, did you and Nancy ever discuss uh, firearms in any capacity? Uh, briefly, yes. Okay. And do you recall when that would have been? It was, uh, I, it, it was October and November, the Christmas before he died, like before that Christmas. So, and it was because it was something my husband and I were interested in. So I'm the one that brought it up. Okay, so would that have been the fall of 2017? Correct. Okay, so sometime before Christmas. It was, yeah, and it was October, November, you know, somewhere in there. I wasn't really paying attention. 
Okay. And so what was your and your husband's plan and what did you brought up? Okay. So my husband being 20 years older than me, we really don't need anything. And I was trying to come up every year with a plan for us, something that we can buy as a family gift. I also had guardianship of my cousin's child at the time. And she is brought up in a family with target practice. And so Dan and my husband grew up with guns. And um, so I said to him, would it be, okay? I said, how do you feel about us getting a set of nine millimeters and taking the kid out shooting? And he said, yeah, I'm game for that. And so we kind of talked about it a little bit and I kind of looked at guns online. Um, I talked to Nancy briefly about it. And Nancy said that her and Dan had plants funny because Dan and I were talking about the same thing. And um, before I ask that next question, to clarify, is your husband's name also Dan? Yes, my Dan, my Dan is Danny, her Dan is Daniel. So okay. it's my Dan, her Dan. All right. Um, and, uh, and so you were, did you explain your plan to Nancy? Oh, yeah. Okay. And so what did she tell you? She said that it sounded fun. Just, you know, target practice, you know, make sure you take a class. Nancy was always the mother. Make sure you take a class, make sure you know how to use it. Okay. Um, and you said that she said that she was thinking of the same. She, what she said was, that's funny. Dan and I were talking about the same plan. And do you know what part, did she elaborate, like, when you say the same plan, which part of your plan? But getting a gun, you know, buying, because buying a gift that we can use as a family because we don't really need anything. So what can we do for Christmas? Like, that kind of a plan. You know, whether it be go on a trip, you know, buy a boat, whatever. <laughs> okay. And did you and Nancy talk specifics at all about, like, how you were going to do that or purchasing them or anything like that? Well, my plan kind of got blown up because I saw the blue Tiffany gun and my father or my husband boycotted that right off the bat because it was $3,500. So our plan never went to fruition. Um, but it, we talked about, um, you know, she said that she did tell me that there was a gun show coming up. And I, of course, went, yeah, that sounds great. And then life happened and gun show apparently came and went and I missed it. And did she tell you when that was? She might have. I don't remember. Do you remember if this is a plan? Was this a plan before Christmas to do it, before Christmas? We talked about this, like, like I said, October or November. And in our conversation, I, you know, I asked her, so what, what do you guys need a gun for? And she said, well, he's always in the woods by himself. And he, and you know, in all fairness, he is, he's up in the middle of nowhere hunting mushrooms by himself. So it, it kind of made sense. All right. Um, and it sounds like then you never followed up with her. I didn't because it didn't happen for me. And I got off on a different tangent and we ended up with metal detectors. <laughs> you and your husband? Yeah. That's what he got. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. And did you ever then, just specifically talking about Dan Brophy, did you ever talk to Dan Brophy about uh, firearms? I did. After I talked to Nancy, I went back to work and and because I had I'd showed Dan the picture of the Tiffany gun and Dan Brophy. Yes. And he said the exact same statement my husband said. Why do you need a thirty five hundred dollar gun when a five hundred dollar gun will fire a bullet the same way? And so I was not going to win my argument with Dan Brophy either. So, yeah, but that was my conversation with him. With Dan Brophy. Okay. Did you talk to him about anything you and Nancy had talked about? 
I said I heard you guys were getting. Get, you were looking at this is what Dan. This is what me and my dad are planning for Christmas. We're talking about. I heard that you guys were looking at this too for target practice. And he said, "Yeah, yeah, I yeah, target practice would be fun." Because we were talking with Kayla, who's my cousin's kid that I had guardianship of, and Kayla was the one that was mostly interested in it. All right, and. Um... Is that the extent of the conversation you had with Dan Brophy about that? Yes. And did you ever follow up with him about Christmas gifts or what had happened? No, no. Um, and with, with Nancy, did you ever revisit the gun show or follow up about? No, no. Okay. And was the plan when you talked to her to go to the gun show together? She had mentioned it and yeah, kind of in hindsight, we talked about it, but then, you know, I was raising a kid, somebody else's kid, life happened and I got busy work, blew up, you know, and it wasn't really a priority for me. And it sounds like from something you just said that did you and your husband have firearms or had knowledge about firearms? Oh no, we have firearms. Okay. And had you talked to Nancy about that before? Did she know you had firearms? Yeah. Nancy, when Nancy had her catering company back at the Beth Temple Israel way back, um, she had a chef named Ed who worked with me prior at the Hilton Hotel. And there was a, somebody had disassembled a wooden futon and threw it out in the side street. And I had been talking to Nancy about it. I wanted to get a gun cabinet for my husband's guns because my husband has a lot of his father's antique double barrel shotguns. I'm talking, these guns are over a hundred years old. And the chef Ed was a guy who was working with woodworking and he was getting into um, blacksmithing. And so I said to Ed, hey, how do you feel about building a gun cabinet with this? And he went, yeah, I could do it. I said, really? He said, yeah. And he built me to this day. It's beautiful. A beautiful gun cabinet with uh, that futon wood. And then he added hazelnut wood to it. And then he made the latches and everything all, he blacksmithed all that and the lock. Um, and so did Nancy ever then sort of ask you questions about firearms other than this conversation you had about the Christmas gift? No, ever? no, we've never, no. Had she come to you and talked to you about firearms, had questions, wanted to go shooting? Would, is that something you could have, you or your husband could have helped her with? Oh, we to I totally would have gone shoot with her and Dan. We would have went target practicing with them. But no, it was never a conversation that we discussed because as far as the gun didn't happen for us. So I, I moved on to the next thing in my life. Put it out of your mind. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, and Um, during that conversation or in any conversations that followed with Nancy, did she ever talk to you specifically about school shootings or concerns about school shootings generally or school shootings at the Culinary Institute? No, the only conversation I had with Nancy that the phrase school shooting came out was the morning she called me when Dan was shot. Nothing before that. Um, all right. And, uh, sort of along those same lines, I, and you may have already answered this. Did Nancy ever tell you, it sounds like not at Christmas time, but any time after that, um, that she had in fact purchased a firearm? Um, the, there was, I want to say February, we talked briefly and she asked what we ended up doing. We had had coffee. We were talking about, I think we were helping Brandon with his life insurance. She had said, 
um, so what did you and Dan end up doing? And I said, well, we got a big argument about the blue Tiffany gun and that got kiboshed and he got metal detectors. And so that's what we did. What'd you do? And she said that they had purchased the gun and it's still in the box. And she told you this back in February. It would have been February. Yeah. Did you ask her any more question about, questions about that? No, no. She said it was in the box and that was that. Um, all right. And um, Ms. Mellon, do you remember talking uh, to Detective Posey on a couple of different occasions yes. during his investigation? Do you remember him asking you if uh, you'd ever talked to Nancy or Dan about firearms? You know, when he came to see me, honestly, it was, I, the first time he came to see me, I was not so great because I was really in the mindset that my buddy was tragically bleeding to death dying. So I literally, honestly, couldn't remember. I remember maybe three things he said to me. So if he said it in the first meeting, I don't recall. And yeah, I don't. Do you recall telling him in the second meeting that you don't remember anything about firearms or talking to Nancy about firearms? I don't, I don't recall if I said anything to him regarding that. I honestly don't. I may have, I don't, if he asked me, I may have, I don't know. Uh, but you're testifying today about what you remember at this point. Yeah. All right. Um, and you mentioned, uh, and I want to talk then about uh, finding out about Dan's death in uh, June of 2018. Um, do you recall where you were and what you sort of first heard or knew? Uh, I, yes, I can remember it like it was yesterday. So where were you and what was the first information? I was on the Oregon coast. I took Kayla out crabbing because she wanted to learn how to go Dungeness crabbing. And so my husband and I took her camping out at the Barview Jetty in Rockaway. And then I took her down to Garibaldi and went out on the Tall Street Pier, dropped some traps. And I was going to head into Tillamook because we went camping as, uh, I have 11 godchildren, so we all went camping as a group, as a family. And it was somebody else's <laughs> birthday, so I was going into Tillamook to buy a cake. And I left Kayla on the dock with the pots, and I said, I'll be back. Got in the car got up onto 101, started heading south, and the phone rang. And, and who called you? It was Nancy. And I answered. I would, I've, I've always, yeah, I mean, it's not a call I would ignore. So it was Nancy. It was a Saturday morning. So what's going on? And, and what did she tell you? Her, they, at first she says, I said, oh, hey, Nancy, what's up? And she said, uh, good morning, Tanya. Um, there was, and she sounded very, just not Nancy. And she said, there was another school shooting. And I went, ah, Christ, where now? I was thinking high school, you know, whatever. And then she said at OCI, and I still didn't register. I went, well, my God, I said, was anybody hurt? And she said, well, yeah. And I said, wait, where was it? And she said, at the Oregon Culinary Institute. I went, holy, is Dan, is, said, is Dan okay? And she said, her response was no, no, Dan's not okay. And I said, well, is he in the hospital? What's going on? And she said, no, no. Dan's dead. And at that point, I was getting pulled over because I was apparently driving 65 and a 25 because I wasn't paying attention. So. And do you, was this, you said, what day was this? Was this Saturday? This was Saturday morning. I worked with Dan Friday night. We worked together an eight-hour shift 
Saturday I was going crabbing and I was leaving the following weekend for my grandson's graduation. So that was the conversation. Dan and I worked Friday night and we talked about, you know, graduation gifts. I asked him about, you know, Nathaniel. We talked about that for a while. And then I went home and got up, went crabbing the next morning. So. Uh, and so you were at the coast. What did you, after you got that phone call, what did you do? I obviously slowed down, turned around, went back, pulled up the pots, grabbed Kayla, went back to camp, told my husband and broke down camp and headed back to Portland. All right. And, um, okay. Um, and do you remember what time that call was? Was it morning after? It was mid morning. Cause we threw pot. We went and we start, we dropped the pots in about nine, nine 30. And we were, I was on the, do the dock with Kayla for a bit till I got her settled. And then I went to go get the cake. So I didn't have a clock with me cause I was out crabbing, but it was, I mean, I threw the pots in at nine 30 ish. So somewhere between that and noon. All right. Um, and it sounds like you didn't come back. Did you come back that day then home or did you? No, we broke down camp cause it was, you know, we, until we got camp broke down and everything, we were set and we left at first light in the morning. Okay. On and Sunday. The next, so Sunday morning yeah. you came back to Portland. Correct. Okay. Um, and did you, uh, do you remember, did you talk to Nancy again that day? after? We that? literally went to the house, dropped the trailer, you know, locked it up. Um, cause you got to put it up on chucks and stuff. And I, we went right to Nancy's house. Okay. So you got just one phone call from her on Saturday. Sometime. Correct. Okay. Didn't talk to her again until you went to her house. Correct. All right. Um, and you and your husband went over to Nancy's house on Sunday. Correct. Okay. Um, and when you, uh, went to her house, were other people there? Yes. F friends or family? Uh, there was one lady I don't know. She's somebody from the, her writer's group. And then Jack and Karen were sitting on the, the bench chair kind of thing. And, um, it was me, my husband and Kayla. Um, when you went to Nancy's house that morning, I assume you talked to her. Oh yeah. Did you have a conversation with Nancy about what had happened? I, I, I yeah, I said, what, what the, what the hell? I mean, what, walk me through this. And what did she tell you? She said, from what she understood, he left in the morning somewhere about seven Oh five. He got to the school and she did, wasn't sure if when he got to the school, if um, he left the door unlocked or, or what happened. But obviously his students came in and found him when classes started. And um, yeah. And uh, did she tell you at all what she was doing that morning? Oh, I asked her. I, my exact words were, where the hell were you when this was happening? Like I literally said it like that in front of everybody because I was just, I, my God, I still can't believe it. And she said I was at home in bed writing. And um, did you talk any further at that point about what had happened? We talked, we were there for a few hours and we talked about it. And, you know, I mean, we didn't talk, we didn't talk like details about it or anything, but we just, like why 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 who would do this talk like, to like in a group with yeah people. like why he was the nicest guy on the planet why um well and it sounds like you were there for a while while you were there uh that particular day on june 3rd uh did nancy give you any items to take 
back with you? Um, she gave me his chef coats, which was the main reason that she, she called me the day prior was, I know you have Dan on the schedule because I had him scheduled at Avamir. He was scheduled to work on Sunday. And I, and I remember the conversation because after she said that, I said, don't worry, I, that's the least of my problems. I'll figure that out. And so, and then Sunday when we went, we were there for a few hours at least. And she said, here, I want to make sure you take back the Avamir jacket so you have them for the rest of the crew. So, and so those were Dan's chef coats? Yeah, yeah. He, they were all hanging right there on a treadmill. And she just gave them all to you? Just it, just that, because okay. he, had, he had different coats for different jobs. Just and, the Avamir coats? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, after that initial visit on June 3rd, um, did you go back to Nancy's house, have more contact with her? Oh, yeah. And did you go to help her? What did that look like? I helped her for the next four months. Not, and not just me, the kitchen crew from Beaverton, my husband, a lot of us were there helping her. And what were you helping her do? Well, at first it was tearing the house apart um, and cleaning. She called me and asked me to help specifically with the basement. So I went back and helped with the basement. I went over originally more just for support to talk to her. And then she said, you know, I, I have a specific job I need help with. Can you help me with this? And I said, yes. And it was the basement. And that was where the majority of his chef stuff was, like his pots, his pans, his processors, his canning stuff. And was she asking you to clean it up, to get rid of it, to pack it? Go through it. We went through everything. And everything we went through, there was, you know, there was a, you know, obviously a junk pile. There was a, you know, uh, she's keeping pile. There's a, there was a specific Nathaniel pile. You know, that goes to Nathaniel, that goes to Jack. Like there were piles. And was this uh, pretty soon after that first day you saw her? Um, it was, no, it was, it would have been almost two weeks, two and a half weeks. Because I believe her brother died and she was dealing with that. Okay. So she was gone for a period. Yeah. Okay. And it was after that that you were helping her? Yeah. Okay. Um, and during that time period over the summer that you were helping her, did she ever, did Nancy ever talk to you about firearms at that point or owning a gun? No. No. Uh, did she mention having anything in the house or anything like that? No. We were, it was more of trying to find the will. The will? Yeah. Okay. Were you, did, was that found? Were you part of that at all? I was not part of finding the will, but it was found. And um, throughout the summer, uh, as you're helping her in those next several weeks, uh, did Nancy ever talk to you further, tell you anything more about the investigation? Or I asked her constantly, have you heard from the police? I asked her constantly, and it was no. I haven't heard anything. That sounds like you brought that up repeatedly. I repeatedly. And was that always her response? She's, yes, because they've, they never, to my knowledge, when I asked her, she's ne never once said, oh, they called me today and discussed the case with me. Yeah, no. Um, and in those conversations, did she communicate to you, um, you know, was she trying to get information and they weren't responding to her or? Um, I, I had asked her numerous times, have you heard from the police? And she said, no, I haven't heard anything. And I said, have you called them? 
And she said, well, I have called a few times. But that, beyond that, she didn't elaborate. I didn't ask. Thank you. That's all the questions I have. All right. Uh, Cross-examination. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, Ms. Medlin. Morning. Let me unwire myself here. I want to show you what's been marked as Dependents Exhibit 256. And ask if you can identify this. Yeah, this is Dan's uh, time clock punches. This so at Avenue, you actually had a clock that you punched in? Yes. Yeah. And um, do you have personal knowledge regarding where that clock is and yes. what the procedures were? Yes. And can you just describe generally what would happen if an employee came in? Well, he always parked in the back lot. You come mm -hmm. in the back door. It's a fingerprint chronos thing. You hit your fingerprint. If your fingerprint didn't work, you had an employee login number that you punched in, and then you hit start shift. That's pretty fancy. Mm -hmm. yeah. Day and age and nine You need a five-year-old to run your cell phone. <laughs> Um, I just want to ask you about December 24th, and can you determine from this record whether Dan Brophy was working on that day? Yeah, he punched in at 149. What time did he punch out? 7.48, six-hour shift. Um, are you familiar with the Brophy's home? Yes. And obviously, you're familiar with the location of Avamir, is that right? Correct. Um, what's the name of that exhibit? The number? I think it's 228. I want to show you what's been marked as Defendant's Exhibit 228. It's going to pop up on oh, your screen. Oh, okay. Sorry. New here. Let me ask you um, you've got a little pointer there, a little green pointer. Yes. You're going to turn around and you're going to look at a really big version of what you're looking at on the tiny screen. Okay. I wonder if you can show the jury where Avamir is. You want me to point that one up there? Yeah. How about okay. How about oh, that, it gets longer. You can I, make I, that. I okay. just figured that out. Cool. Like I said, I'm new here. Yeah. Uh, our house is here. Okay. And where's Avamir? Here. And is that about a two-mile distance? I'm a left or right girl. I don't know. Yeah, sure. It's about a five or six minute trip. Okay, so it's a quick trip? Yeah. So if you left Avamir at, what'd you say, 748, would you expect that Dan would be home before 8 o'clock? Well, it would depend. Honestly, it's 217, which is a nightmare. The, I mean, <laughs> if there's an accident, you could be there 40 minutes. Sure. So, yeah. What about on but Christmas Eve? On a given Eve? day, if he left work at 10 till, I would think he'd be home by 5 after. 15 minutes is, yeah. Well, it's a five-minute drive. What's he doing for the other 10 minutes? Well, I'm, until he goes outside, starts his truck, gets his stuff organized. Okay. You know, he always took stuff out for his chickens sure. and he put it in a truck. You okay. know, the scraps. You know. Okay. I mean, to be fair. Loading up? Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. You know? And he had an older truck, so he didn't just, he never jumped in and started it and took off. He would give it a second. Were then, you working on, you can sit down again. I'm sorry. Were you, were you working on Christmas Eve? <laughs> I don't know. You know. I don't remember. Okay. That was, yeah, I work so much, I don't know. You were working on June 1st, though, is that right? Yes, Friday, yes. And do you remember anything about a waffle iron on June 1st? On June 1st? 
not on June 1st. I had a convers I had a conversation with Dan about a waffle iron prior. Okay. Um, Nancy after. Okay. Did Dan Brophy own a waffle iron yes. that was kind of a, a yes. big commercial? Yes, he had a big daddy one. And this is something that weighed like 40 or 50 pounds? Oh, yeah. And was it, a, was it an appliance that Dan Brophy loved? Yeah, it was a commercial waffle iron. Okay. And um, do you know whether he would take that waffle iron with him from time to time to the school? Yes, he took a lot of his equipment to the school. He brought a lot of his equipment to work. You, you testified that from time to time you would call Nancy Brophy and complain, or not complain, just kind of kvetch about your own marriage. Is that right? No, I'd call her and complain. You can say it. That's good. Yeah. I love my husband, but, you know, he's apple my eye, pain in my ass. It all goes with the thing. Okay. Um, did Nancy Brophy ever complain to you about Dan Brophy? She would, my conversations with Nancy would go, oh, my God, my husband. I'm, I would say, and forgive me, but I would say I'm going to kill them because he was driving me crazy. And Nancy would say, what's going on? And I'd tell her what's going on. And she would be, Tanya, you want a long marriage, correct? Yeah. Okay. 50 years down the road, is this the argument you want to keep having? Pick your battles. This is, you know what? This is one you can let him win. Okay. As much as I didn't want to, you know, and in the end, 90% of the time she was right. I hate to admit it, but she was, she was right. Did, did Nancy complain to you about her marriage with Dan? She would laugh and say, you know, Tanya, at the end of the day, what's important is, you know, my Dan still makes me laugh. And in the time that you've known Nancy Brophy, has she ever, uh, has she always expressed an appreciation for the fact that Dan Brophy could make her laugh? Always. Did that ever change? No. Just before Dan Brophy died, did you have a conversation with Dan or Nancy regarding plans they were making for a birthday celebration? Not, I didn't discuss plans with them. I discussed with Dan that he wanted the week of June 27th off for his birthday. And do you know whether they had, had a trip planned for that week? I, you know, honestly, I don't remember. I was more concerned with making sure I had him off the schedule. You, you described going over to the Brophy's house after Dan died to help clean up the basement? Yes. And was that because you had provided, you had provided some organizational help to Nan Nancy Brophy earlier when you had worked for her? I worked for Nancy's catering company many times. I, even when I wasn't working for her, she would call and say, hey, can you come do the third floor? Because the third floor is where they kept all their plate, all the stuff that they took to caterings, all their equipment. And, you know, when you come back from an event, you dump it. So I'd go up and reorganize. So she knew that you had some organizational skills. Oh, yeah. Um, describe for the jury what, what you saw when you got to this basement. Um, it was it was dirty. It was a mess. There was um, they had, uh, I guess, some kind of issue with. I don't know if it was a raccoon, a rat, something. They had some kind of, there was animal droppings. Um, there was uh, just, it was just a lot of stuff piled up. And yeah, a lot, a lot. There was a lot there. 
And when you say there was a lot, do you know whose a lot it was? Well, there was everything from pans to pots to canning ware to, you know, jars to, you know, uh, catering. There was, there was just a, anything you could think of in the food world was down there. Do you know whether that basement area was Dan's area, Nancy's area, or something they both used? Um, I would assume the laundry would be both of them because they have clean clothes. Um, but I think it was mostly storage and, you know, where they stored canning stuff, where they stored equipment, I'm sure, in the past for the catering company that where the, the equipment for culinary was. I'm sure that was, you know, chef de jour stuff, too. I mean, it was they're both in the business. So you, you testified that you went there to try to help clean up and to organize. Oh, I did. We did. We got it cleaned up. And um, you were going through items. Some items were being thrown away. Some items were being given away. Some items were being sold. There were certain things that were not sold. I don't know anything was sold. Okay. There was, um, uh, hang on, let me back that up. That's not 100% true. Um, there were some things that were sold that were sold to Avamir, me as a company, mm -hmm. that my company purchased. Okay. And they were like the rubber scrapers and spoons and things that my crew uses every day that they, you know, leave on the burning pan and screw up that I can't have. So it's things that I have to replace consistently. So, um, yeah, there was those things. And I'm going to say it was maybe a hundred dollars worth of stuff that Avamir bought, but it was like spoons, okay. stuff like that. Is but it fair to say that Dan had multiples of multiples of multiples, multiples of multiples? Yeah. Dan had 12 of everything. If you needed it, ask him. Okay. So you're actually <laughs> able to restock some of what you needed for Avamir from um, yes. Dan's stock of yes. things downstairs. Yeah. Would it be, um, and I don't want to say this in a judgmental way, but um, would you agree that Dan Brophy was a collector of stuff? He did not like to throw things away in case he needed it. Okay. That's the way I'd like to say it. He All wasn't right. so much a collector as he was, you know what, there's going to come a time when I need that and I'm going to know right where it's at. When you were at the Brophy home, did you recognize that there were some spaces that, that Dan used primarily and some spaces within the home that Nancy maybe had to herself? <coughs> yeah, that's fair. Some rooms that were very clean and some rooms that maybe were no, not. not, I wouldn't say clean or unclean. Nancy's house was never, I never, it was never dirty. It was just, you know, he, he made homemade ketchup. He made home, homemade sauces. I mean, the kitchen was his domain. Um, the, the dining room, the bright pink dining room was Nancy's, you know, the, the, the sitting room up front actually belonged to the dogs, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, You said that you brought a crew over. Yes. Tell me what the crew did. How many people were there and what um, did you do? I, the, well, I helped Nancy all summer and it was, you know, a carload here, a carload there, stuff like that. Again, there was specific things that were going to storage. There were specific things for Jack. There were specific things for Nathaniel. And like, she was adamant about that. Um, there was certain things that she was keeping. There was, uh, uh, a picture frame, I want to say it's toothpaste, but I don't know what it is, I could be wrong, but that she was keeping that, it was something that Dan loved. Um, and there was things that she just were too big, she couldn't use. Um, I believe I have, I was given his desk, I think it was his desk, um, that's in my office at home now. And they had a little armoire thing for, which is now in my husband's office and he uses it. You know, things like that, there was, um, 
a giant stainless steel rondo that they gave that she gave me. Um, I some knives that she gave me. There were some other pans that she gave me. Um, there was uh, a, a, a copper pan that, in conversation with Jack, found Nathaniel wanted. So I made sure the family got that one back. Um, yeah. How many people did you bring over your crew? So Anthony, Miranda, and Jimmy, Wesley. Uh, five or six. Okay, so um, it was you and maybe a crew of five or six. Yeah, it was my guys at work, my uh, sous chef. His friend was um, a truck driver for one of the hauling companies, and he was able to get a free truck uh -huh. and free labor to help her move. Okay. And while you were there doing things, maybe sometimes when you were there with the crew and other times when you weren't. The crew you? was there once. They came okay. one day, did what they had to do, and got rid of it for Okay. Them. But there were many other people who came to that house to help clean out. Yeah, true? Susan was there. Were you there on a, a cleaning day when some of the writer friends were there? Uh, the only writer friend that I recall and remember is the woman the first day that I went when after we drove back from the coast on Sunday. And that woman was there, and I she was a bigger lady, and she kept trying to shove food in Nancy's face to make her eat. And Nancy was not interested in eating. Let's talk about that. We've heard testimony that maybe uh, Nancy Brophy didn't seem sad after Dan died. Was that your impression? N I have had conversation with Nancy. I've seen Nancy fall apart. I also know that in my history of my friendship with Nancy and the fact that I know Nancy from a business end, Nancy's business. Nancy is very straightforward to the point. Don't beat around the bush. And I'm I think that when she, well, it's not really that thing. I know because I've worked with her. When it happens to her and stress hits her, she goes right into like, boom, like built, like, you know, marching steps. What's in it? I, in order for me to keep moving, I got to put the next foot in front of the other one. Like that is, that's how she ran her business. That's how, you know, when things attacked her, because I've worked with her at the River Place Alexis Hotel. She, when she first came and she was my roommate, I got her a job there. And, you know, she worked out in the patio that summer and it's a high pressure job. And, you know, there were days she was frazzled and she would kick right into that mode. It's like a business mode. So her coping mechanism was to take care of business and stay busy. She was always busy. And I think you said that that summer, right after Dan died, her brother had died. Yes. I believe it was almost like to the day a week later. Okay. And, um, how did she respond to that? Same way. Yeah. Matter. It was, I, I don't want to say matter of fact, but this is what's happening. This is what I got to deal with. One step, one step forward. Yeah. It was just, this is what I got to deal with. So I don't really have a choice. I just have to get this done. Do you know whether Nancy Brophy was on the mortgage to the Brophy's home? I... I know she was on the note or she was on the mortgage or she was on the mortgage and not in the note. It was one or the other. And I can't remember which way it went. And do you know whether that created some pressure for her to sell that home? That yes. Quickly? It was an immense pressure. Um, and how did you, did she talk to you about that pressure? Yes. And it, as a woman who's married to a man who's 20 years older than me, who at one point on our mortgage was not allowed to be on it because it's a VA loan. I get that because you can lose everything. Like I get that. But it, it didn't, 
I was, I was, I didn't pay attention to anything going on. I was, I was there supporting my friend and helping her. Sure. That was what, well, my, that's what my heart was telling me to do. But it was your understanding that she was getting that house sold quickly because she was nervous about not being on the note. Well, that, and the fact that, you know, we had a conversation about, um, she, she can't, she can't, she can't do anything. There's, you know, she's kind of stuck. Tell me more. I don't understand what you're saying. Um, she wanted to sell the house so that, because she couldn't even, I don't believe that he, that our conversation was she had to sell the house because he, if she wants, she turns to him the death certificate into social security to claim the benefit, it would go out to the banks. Okay. And, and did you understand that that was why there was, she was in a hurry? That's, it, it made sense to me at the time. Okay. Yes. Um, there's was also testimony about the fact that the chickens were given away soon after Dan died. Nancy doesn't like birds. Yes, they were gone like immediately. Okay. Did you ever see Nancy take care of the chickens? No. Uh, that was primarily Dan's responsibility. Yeah, and he loved his birds, yes. His, okay. his girls, his ladies. Okay. Is that what he calls them? Yeah. 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 There were days he had to go home and have a conversation with them because they weren't laying. <laughs> to be the fly on that wall. Um, I wonder if you could describe for the jury just generally what that back lot looked like. Oh, Lord. It was a mess. I, I used to, I used to, this is my biggest joke with Dan. Um, and I used to say to Nancy, I, how do you do this? Because my husband would be out here cleaning this. And it was one of those conversations where... Nancy responded with, this makes him happy. This makes my husband happy. Do I want to go out and do yard work? No. Do I want to deal with the birds? No. This is his thing. You know, as long as he's happy, this is not a battle I'm going to pick. That was that conversation. That was was that was. true throughout, throughout the time that you knew Nancy and Dan, that she would not, not quibble or quarrel over the things that made Dan happy? I, I, specifically the yard. Yeah. That, and I've never, Dan loved what he did. I mean, and I've, I, from, from where I stood, I never saw Dan hinder her nor her hinder him. It wasn't a one-way street. Like, I've never seen it. Did you get the impression that they had um, an unusually healthy partnership from your perspective? I wouldn't say it was unusually healthy. I think they were just happy. You know, I thought they were happy together. I thought they were happy people. I mean, I, I never saw them. We went to concerts. I never saw them fight. Well, you actually got to talk to Dan as you got to know him. Yeah, we And uh, it sounds like if you brought up personal things, he wouldn't raise a personal issue himself. But if you brought one up, he would then have a conversation with you. Yeah, we had a, we had a great conversation the night before he died. And that was about his son? Yes. Um, tell us about that. He it was based around my grandson, Kyle, who was graduating high school and he was heading off to Texas A&M and I wanted to get, I don't have kids. So these are my step grandchildren. And I said to Dan, what did you get Nathaniel for graduation? Because I don't know what an appropriate gift is. And he asked me, what do you want to do? I said, I just want to hand him a thousand dollars, but I want to show up to the other two grandmothers. And he said, well, let's break it down because that's how Dan was. Let's break it down. And so we talked about it and I said, well, what did you do for Nathaniel? And he said, 
I was not exactly, and he was, and I could tell that the conversation tugged at him because when he doesn't want to show his feelings, he kind of diverts his eyes and he gets busy with his knife. And he said, I wasn't there. I was estranged from my son at that time in his life. And he said that he regretted it to this day because he wasn't there during his graduation like he should have been. That's what he said to me. Did he talk to you at all that night about the fact that Nancy had helped him repair that relationship? He didn't say that. He just said that he had been working very hard um, to restore. We talked a lot about, and I'm going to probably say her name wrong and I apologize, Ad Adeline, the little granddaughter. He loved her. We talked about pancakes. We talked about how he made her pancakes and that was his highlight. He looked forward to that. And, you know, it, when she was in the kitchen with him, she was the boss, not him. So, yeah, but that was, we talked about that all on Friday night. Um, just one question for you, Ms. Medlin. Um, in talking about the deed or the bank note, it sounds like you couldn't remember which. It was, it was, I'm trying to remember because I was in the same situation at one point and I'm trying to remember which, what it was. My husband was on the VA loan. So he was on the loan and I was on the deed and Oregon law at the time, because I'm now on both, but Oregon law at the time was if say my husband died, the bank would then come in and do a background, you know, like a, whatever you sure. call it, yep. credit check on me to see whether or not I could carry the mortgage. And so in that conversation, did Nancy tell you that she'd just recently been put on the deed? No. She just said that she was on one, but that she was on the deed, but not the mortgage. Same. Okay. Andrea Jacobs, A-N-N-D-R-E-A-J-A-C-O-B-S. Okay. And you can actually take the mask all the way Okay. Off. That's fine. <laughs> Thank you. Um, when you're ready, Mr. Overstreet. Thank you, Your Honor. Ms. Jacobs, we'll get the... Obvious out of the way first. You're currently okay. in custody? Correct. Okay. Where are you currently in custody? Um, at Bryan, Texas, at a federal women's prison camp. Okay. Um, I guess when I said currently, I'll be more clear. That's where you're serving your sentence? Correct. Is, a, is, a, is that a minimum security prison? It is. And it's, it's actually referred to as a prison camp? It is. A, it, yes. There's um, no cells or anything. It's a camp. Okay. And... Uh, What's the length of your sentence that you're currently serving? 48 months. Okay. And uh, you were transported up here uh, recently? Um, yes, Mon Monday. I got in around midnight. Okay. And so you're currently housed in Multnomah County Jail? Correct. Um, have you previously been housed in the Multnomah County Jail? Uh, yes. And when was that? Do you remember? Um I don't remember the exact dates, sure. just prior to me getting transported to federal ground. Okay. Do you remember when you were transported to federal? Um, when I got to federal ground was February 28th. February 28th mm -hmm. of this year? Correct. Yeah. February 28th of 2022. And you don't recall when you went into custody? Just I, about. <laughs> I don't. I'm sorry. Um... I, I just, I don't know the exact dates because. Um, 
I, w I was in and out a couple of times, okay. and then I was at Grady County in Oklahoma for a couple months, so it's just been... Because they moved you around a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, it, have you been in Multnomah County, sorry, before February 28, 2022, were you in Multnomah County um, going all the way back uh, to when you entered a plea deal? Yes. Okay. If you yeah. entered the plea deal on September 1st of 2020, would that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. So you're in, in custody for at least since then. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, I believe it was May 2020 is when I first became incarcerated. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, Ms. Jacobs, I think what I was last asking you was the, when you had previously been housed in Multnomah County. Um, between the two, just just briefly, I don't want a long explanation, but mm -hmm. just between the two, being in Multnomah County and, and being at the federal prison camp in Bryan, Texas, uh, which do you prefer? The prison camp. Um, you mean as far as amenities? <laughs> no, I just, guess I don't know what you mean. If you had to be in one, which one would you rather be in? Oh, I would rather be at a prison camp than okay. county jail, yes. When, when you were told that you were being transported up here to testify how did you react to that um i said no i didn't want to be <laughs> I, I didn't want to testify okay but you're here i'm here why because i'm here because <laughs> you don't want to be no no i no i tried no i i don't i didn't want to testify did you have a choice um no not that. Honestly, I don't know. I just, next thing I know, I was being picked up. It, it has all happened very quickly, as I'm sh sure let's, let's talk to you. How, let's talk about how you got here. Okay. Um, had you talked uh, to law enforcement about your role in this murder case before April 26th of no. this year? Uh, sometime that week... Did some detectives come visit you? At federal, the federal camp? Down in Texas. I'm Correct, sorry. yes. Uh, was that Detective uh, Anthony Merrill and Detective Brian Sims? Yes. And they came to visit you sometime that week? Yes. And uh, did you know why they were there when they showed up? No, I had no idea. Did you call them? No. So they came to you? Correct. And did you sit down and, and speak with them? Yes. And was that interview recorded? Yes. After that, uh, did you have uh, further conversations uh, with our office regarding your testimony? Um, one phone call, okay. yes. And in that phone call, did you relay that you really didn't want to be part of this? Yes. Did we tell you, sorry? Yes. Coming anyway? <laughs> much I want to before I move on uh, kind of with that line of questioning I want to go back to how you ended up in prison okay uh, first of all today I know this is an impolite question but I want to give some context how old are you uh, 51 before you took that plea deal in September of 2020 had you ever been convicted of a crime no September on September 1st of 2020, uh, did you plead guilty to four separate counts? 
Um, yes. Okay. On two cases? Correct. Okay. And was one of those counts uh, filing a false tax return in 2011? Yes. Was one of the other counts impersonating an IRS employee? I, I'm not sure, actually. I don't know. I was. Okay. If I show you a document, will that maybe help refresh your recollection? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I haven't looked at it for a while. Sure. And I can show you a different document if you could read that um, part. And if that helps, if not, I can show you a different document. Okay. No, that's fine. I trust it. Does that uh, help refresh your recollection uh, that you were convicted of that, that crime? Correct. Yes. And then uh, for the third count on that uh, case, uh, were you also convicted of aggravated identity theft and furtherance of wire fraud? Yes. And then I mentioned the second case. Um, and, and you pled to all these on the same day, right? This is all part Correct. of a, a global plea deal, mm -hmm. as it were? Okay. And in that case, uh, did you plead guilty to bank fraud? Yes. And you pled guilty uh, to those, and then you were given that 48-month sentence in exchange for your plea? Yes. Okay. Um, at that time... When you pled guilty, was there any discussion about your involvement in Nancy Brophy's murder case? No, actually. You were with her the entire time? Um, pretty I was in the same dorm, yes. Same dorm, mm -hmm. okay. And was that at the Inverness Jail or at the uh, Central? Um, both, a little bit of both. In general, when you would be moved to a different dorm, would Nancy Brophy be moved with you? Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. And is there some exception to what we're talking about? There's some times where you would spend some time apart? Yes. I mean, the cubicles are, I mean, everybody's next to each other. So it's not like we were in individual cells together. Sure. It's an open dorm. I see. Okay. And maybe that's helpful to explain what, yeah. what this looks like. Uh, this isn't, and on TV we see sometimes people going into their individual cells or they share a cell with one other person. Yeah. It's, that's not what you're talking about. No. Mm -hmm. This is more like a dorm setting where it's open. Yeah. There's cubicles with five beds. Per cubicle, you know. I'm sorry. Let me ask you just maybe an easier question. How many beds are in the larger dorm room? Um, there's five beds to each cubicle. There could be 25 cubicles in okay. a dorm, depending on how big the dorm is. Okay. And so uh, I believe you just said this, but if you moved from one dorm to the next, did everybody move? Or just some people? Everybody. Because there's only one women's holding. Okay, that's what I was asking. Do you know why that is? Just, okay. Nope. Okay. <laughs> no idea. And in your time that you're around uh, Miss Brophy, did you two get along? Uh, yes. Did, would you say, I mean, I know it's jail, but would you say you became friends? Yes. I, I mean, yeah. It's jail, so. Sure. <laughs> Not friends, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, were your beds often close to each other? Uh-huh, yes. Was that intentional, or did you have a choice? Um, not at first. It wasn't. It, I was just put in the cubicle. You were put in the same cubicle as Miss Brophy? Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, you said not at first, so later on when you moved, were you allowed to choose who you bunked with? Yes, we would. Okay. Mm -hmm. And would you and Miss Brophy choose to bunk near each other? Yes. 
So when you have these, um, when you're in these bunks, is there any restriction on uh, talking? Um, after 10.30 at night. And then, I mean, I haven't been there for a little bit, but like three to four. So no, not really. I mean, it's open dorm. Okay. Um, and by that same token, could people overhear your conversations as well? I'm sure they could, yes. You know, if they will. Yeah, it was plausible. How often would you say you talk to Nancy Brophy when you would be housed together? Oh, on a daily basis. Just in general, what kind of things would you talk about? Food, wine, travel. Um, did you talk about your criminal case with Miss Brophy? I didn't, no. Did Miss Brophy ever bring up her criminal case? Yes. Did she talk about it often or, or less often? Um, no, not. I mean, she talked about it, depending on what was going on with, with her case. Have you ever seen this before? Can you see it from there? Yeah, People Magazine. Have you seen that? How about that a particular hand? one? Yeah. This. I'll have you take a look at it first. Then. Oh. Um, no, I have not seen this one. Not that particular one? Correct. It has a different cover page. Okay. Does that look familiar? Yeah. Okay. Have you seen a magazine that had that same? Correct. Article mm -hmm. title. Where did you see that? Um, and when I was in holding, or when I was in jail. Did, did, was there a particular person that had that magazine? Yes, Nancy. Nancy had that? Mm -hmm. What did she say about it? She just asked if I wanted to read the article. And if permitted, I could ask a leading question to steer clear. Uh, in this, yes, I'll allow a leading question for this. Was that article um, a uh, People Magazine uh, recitation of Miss Brophy's case? Yes. Okay. And it was about her criminal case? Correct. Yeah. And Miss Brophy had that? Yes. And she asked if you wanted to read it? Yes. Did she say why she wanted you to read it? She just asked if I wanted to read it. Were you ever present... Um, and see and hear Miss Brophy offer that article for others to read? Yes. Did she do that to several people? Here again, we're leading. We are, Mr. Overstreet. How many people? Um, several people have read it when I was there. Okay. You said Miss Brophy talked about her case. Um, did she talk about her husband? Some. Did you know his name? Yes, Dan. What kind of things would she tell you about Dan? Um, mostly about the cooking, that he liked to cook. Pretty much just cooking. Sure. No, it's fine. Uh, when Miss Brophy would talk about Dan, what was her demeanor like? Um... Just it was just a conversation. Was she crying? No. Wailing? No. 
Did she make any other comments about Mr. Brophy? Um, well, if you're, I don't know how much you want me to get into conversation. So, I mean, comments like what did, what did he do for a living or well, why don't you comments? Um, you know, I remember asking her, um, if she could use the media to help find who killed her husband, you know, because I felt like that was important. Um, if you had a platform, then you could use that platform to help, you know, find out who did this horrible thing to her husband. And she said she didn't have to prove who who killed her husband. She just needed to worry about proving that she didn't. Um, and... I thought that was an interesting objection. Don't want you to speak about what you thought or what okay. you felt about Sorry. things. Just what you observed. Okay. So I'll ask the jury to disregard that last portion. So you, I'm oh, sorry, Judge. Sorry. Um, so you brought that up to her. Correct. And that was her response. Yes. Okay. At some point in time. Um, did Ms. Brophy ask you to be a witness in her case? Objection. Leading. That's not. No, a... that. Sorry. I'll allow that question. Yes. Do you remember when that was? I don't remember the exact date and time, no. Did you agree or decline? At the time, I didn't say anything. Did you eventually tell her whether you would agree or decline to be a witness in her case? Um, she actually came to me okay. and said that she shouldn't have asked me because she knew that I wouldn't want to be put in a position to lie. Um, and I said, thank you. I appreciate that because there is no way I'm going to get involved in this case. Okay. And that was the conversation. What was she asking you to testify to? Whether or not she talked about her case in when she was when we were in jail. Did you ever ask Miss Brophy how Dan died? Yes. What did she tell you? Um, and she told me that he was shot two times to the heart, and um, that it. And she showed me the distance. She said he was shot two times to the heart, and she said. It was about, and she used her arm span because I said, wow, that's must have been close up, you know, and she used her arm span and said, well, it was about this far. And that's okay. <clears throat> so just to be clear, she held her arms out. Correct. Said it was about this far. Correct. Did she say anything? About her involvement? No. I mean, when we were first talking, she slipped up and she started to say I, but then it, she switched really quick to it. And so I don't, I mean, she was saying it was about this far. I mean, it was not, 
You say, you know how you sometimes you start saying something, then you're like, oh, like that, you know. And you said that you had previously, you remember being uh, meeting with detectives, and that interview was recorded. Correct. Um, is that what you told the detectives? Yes. She said hi and then switched to it and used her arm span and said it was about this far and she was just looking, trying to figure out the, the distance. My name is Nancy Crampton-Brophy. That's N-A-N-C-Y-C-R-A-M-P-T-O-N-B-R-O-P-H-Y. All right. Um, when defense is ready. Thank you, Your Honor. Let me know if you can't hear me. I will. Because you can't read my lips. <laughs> um, Sorry. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Wichita Falls, Texas. And how big is Wichita Falls, Texas? It's 100,000, but a lot of that is the air base that's there. Okay. Uh, when did you move to Oregon? Uh, 1990 or 1991. And why did you move to Oregon? Because I wanted to take a year off, and I thought going to culinary school sounded like a whole lot more fun than saying, oh, I'm just taking a year off. Okay. Uh, do you remember the first time you saw Dan Brophy? Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. Uh, I Culinary school in Western Culinary, which was where I was, had a program where 101 was the first class you took, and it was six weeks long, and you were separated out from the rest of the uh, students. So when we joined the students, Dan had been hired at either that day or the day before. So it was like we all came together at the same place at the same time. Had you ever met a guy anything like Dan Brophy before you met him? No, no. He was unique. Can you tell us five things about him, maybe five things that separated him from the pack for you? He was smart. He was really smart. And he was funny. You could have to, I laughed all the time when I was with him. And a lot of people going, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? Because he was very dry in his sense of humor. Um, he, uh, he was kind. He, he was so kind. You... I was, that probably won me over more than lots of other things might have. He not only thought outside the box, this man lived outside the box. He really did not operate going forward the way most of us did. But the thing I probably liked the best about him, the thing, he loved me. And if that isn't a big, I don't know, a big number one item, I don't know what is, you know? And I loved him back. How many years were you together? 24 years, 10 months, two days. That's pretty precise. What are you um, measuring from? We were friends for a couple of years before, we, uh, before our friendship moved further. I count it from the time our friendship moved further. You can be friends with a lot of people, but it doesn't count. You know, once you said we're committing to others, people in other ways, then that's where I start the counting. Did you and Dan Brophy complete each other or balance each other out? Completely. I'm a flawed person. Dan's a flawed person. We came together and made up one really good team. He, uh, 
his weaknesses were my strengths. My strengths tended to be his weaknesses. And together, it just fit immediately and never stopped. When the two of you were together, did you try to give him a platform from which he could do his very best work? I did. I did. Dan was bright. He was funny. He was lots of things, but he was also humble. And this is a man who, this is a man who needed a cheerleader. And I was his cheerleader. And it, it, this was not a one-way street. He was mine as well. But uh, I helped him become more known for who he was because he would have just stayed in the shadows. He was that kind of guy. And he needed somebody to say, hey, this guy over here, he's really, really smart. You ought to listen to him, you know? We've heard a lot during this trial about Dan and his demeanor in social settings. Mm -hmm. uh, is it fair to say that Dan was socially unaware? No, no. Dan... Dan was very aware. He just wasn't a big participant. He didn't need to fill in the blank space. You know, a lot of times when there's a void in the conversation, somebody absolutely feels that they have to jump in and say something. Not Dan. Dan's perfectly okay with silence. So he, uh, he, uh, I'm sorry to say I lost the direction I was going there. Okay, I'm so sorry. I, I was supposed to be paying attention, but let I me went stop off. You. Okay. Let me stop you. You've been described as the one who had better social skills or the front of the house, I yeah. think is what someone said, and that Dan was back doing the cooking or mm -hmm. uh, preparing meals or being the quiet guy to the side. Mm -hmm. Were there times that Dan helped you socially? Oh, yeah. Oh. I, as someone said earlier, I'm a chatter, and I don't remember who said that, but I am a chatter. And I can just start running. And I never met a rabbit hole I didn't like. And there were times that Dan would come out, and he would be so subtle, and he would make this little move. And I knew I needed to calm down, back up, because he was trying to help me not run away with things. Let but, me back, back you up. Oh, sorry. This move. This move. <laughs> and, <laughs> and actually, he did it. He did it with this hand because it was a C for chill. <laughs> and he, it was real calm. If you were standing next to him, you wouldn't have noticed it. But if he was, I was looking at him, I knew exactly what he meant. <laughs> if you were on your way down a rabbit hole. He had a very subtle way of kind of trying to bring mm -hmm. you back. Mm-hmm. We've heard that Dan didn't always lock doors. Is that true? True. We've heard that he collected stuff, lots of stuff. Is that true? That's true. What did you think about that? One, well, this is a complicated answer. All right. I was perfectly okay with that. And the reason why I was perfectly okay with that is Dan didn't collect stuff that didn't mean anything. Everything he collected, he had... A, a purpose for, or he could see a future purpose for. It wasn't like, you know, he was gathering stuff he didn't need. It was gathering stuff that he could see he would need, maybe not today, but next week. To give you the best example of that, I was still catering at, uh, in a kitchen I didn't own when Dan and I, well, Dan encouraged me and I did 
did it, started purchasing equipment. By the time I had my own kitchen, because of Dan's help on this, I was ready to go. I had all the equipment I needed. I didn't have to stop and buy equipment. Dan had the kind of vision where you could see it further down the road. And he had that vision for me, and he had that vision for himself as well. Did Dan, what kind of, did Dan tend to, well, I don't want to use that word. Okay. <laughs> Would it be fair to say that Dan's kind of working style, at least to the untrained observer, seemed chaotic? Oh, yeah. Even to his wife, there were times when it seemed chaotic. Was it? No, no. He knew exactly what he was doing. He had a plan to get through to the end. And uh, and you may not have thought, if you were a stranger, that he really knew everything was going on. But I assure you, Dan knew everything that was going on. And later on, he, we would start, he'd start a conversation in which I thought, well, Dan wasn't even paying attention to that, but Dan knew every detail. That was not him. You know, he knew what was going on. You said that you, you were flawed and that mm -hmm. he completed you. Mm -hmm. uh, were there parts of your personality or parts of who you were who maybe, that maybe could be frustrating to Dan or exasperating to Dan? Oh, I think so. I mean, I don't think that uh, I, I'm not coming into this situation perfect by any wild stretch of the imagination. And I am a person who has been self-employed all my life. And if I see an opportunity, I tend to leap in feet first. And Dan is not like that at all. Dan is research, research, research. Okay, we'll do this. And, uh, and here's how we'll do it. Me, I'm already in the middle of the water before I think, huh, maybe a plan would have been a good idea. What do you think? How did you guys resolve those times when maybe your imperfections were coming to the surface? Well, we talked, you know. Uh, every night we sat in the hot tub and we talked and uh, the TV wasn't on and, and we were sitting there and uh, and he was giving me guidance on on uh, my catering company and what to do and he was telling me about his day and it's the frustrations we had were relatively uh, were relatively minor, but I don't want to jump into a rabbit hole here, but there is an issue I could go to. That's all right. We're going to try to keep you out of the rabbit hole. Thank you. In the nearly 25 years that, uh, that you were with this man, did you ever doubt Dan Brophy's commitment to you? No. And did I never doubted his fidelity either. Did you ever doubt your own commitment to him? Never once. What's it like to be without him now? It's like you've lost an arm, you know? Like, you're just not as good as you were when you were with him. When you were with him. You were the best you could be when you were together with him. And now, it's like, yeah, I function, but there's something missing. Do you think, looking back on it now, that you held up your end of your marriage? Oh, I do. I do. And I would tell you if Dan was here, he'd tell you the same thing. And he would tell you he held up his end of his marriage, of our marriage as well. Did each of you marry the right person? A hundred percent, absolutely. I want to shift gears for just a minute. Okay. 
and talk to you about money, okay? There's been a lot said during this trial about how you and Dan hand, handled finances. Mm -hmm. At times, uh, it sounded like maybe you were even being shamed by some of the expert witnesses. Did it feel that way to you? I would say, when I told you Dan thought outside the box and maybe didn't even lived outside the box, yeah, uh, but I would say I did the same. You know, we made choices that other people wouldn't have made. Did you graduate from the University of Houston? I did. What was your degree in? Economics. And did Dan have a college degree? He did. And what was his degree in? Biology. Was Dan a very, very, very smart man? Yes, he was. Probably one of the smartest men I've ever known. Between the two of you, did you know how to run a business? I did. Did he know how to run a business? It was a learning thing, and he learned with me as we went along. And between the two of you, did you know how to run a household? I did. No. Maybe you did things a little different than other folks. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Financially, did things just kind of go off the tracks for you and Dan some, somewhere between 2014 and 2017? Yes, they did. It was, a series of things happened that all came together at the wrong moment, you know. Let me ask you this. Was there... Um, a reduction in the income that the two of you were making? Well, that was one of the first things that happened. Uh, Dan had a second income, almost a second job, because he taught classes all over town. He taught a lot for In Good Taste. He taught a lot for Portland Nursery. He taught a lot for Bob's Red Mill. In addition, he taught private classes in people's homes as uh, demonstrated by uh, Vicki Schmalls, who talked about the fact that he did classes at her home for people. He did this constantly. We had a, a strong second income. I don't know if it was 14 or 15, but In Good Taste closed. Bob's Red Mill decided to remodel and it changed the ownership from Bob to the employees. Uh, the Portland Nursery, uh, decided that they wanted to go in a different direction and did. Uh, so it was just a series of things that just kind of all in the same small period of time shut down that money. Well, let me ask you this. In 2014, mm -hmm. were you just about, was it 2014 or 2015 that you were about to turn 65? I turned 65 and 15. Okay. As you were looking at 65, did you want out of selling life insurance? I did. I did. And that was even more emphasized by the fact when I was having eye surgery. I'm going to uh, bring you back to that. I, I know, but I, I, I couldn't work. And all of a sudden, when you can't work, you suddenly realize there's no income coming in. Okay. Oh, you mean from life insurance. Right. <laughs> During the same period that your income dropped, mm -hmm. did, did you have some changes in your expenses? Yes, we had... Uh, uh, a bunch of unexpected medical expenses, uh, both on me and on Dan and on the dog, you know. Dan's expenses were what? Dan had a tooth that he had implanted, uh, and it was $4,000. It wasn't, you know, an outrageous amount of money, and normally we could have handled it. 
But if you put it on top of the fact that I just had twelve, uh, eight, I'm sorry, eight thousand dollars worth of eye surgeries, uh, and the dog uh, decided to have a seizure one night and to the tune of two thousand uh, dollars, you know, it was just suddenly all of a sudden we had an unexpected. What is that? For uh, eight, four to $14,000 worth of unexpected expenses that year. Okay, let me redirect you just for a second. Sure. You talked about your own medical expenses and your eye surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there a time in uh, early 2015 when you had an alarming experience? Oh, yes. What was that? I'm driving, and uh, I'm driving, and I reached up, and I scratched... My face, I, I must have done it this way. Was, okay, let me think about this. Uh, I reached up and scratched my face, and the head, uh, the taillights of the car in front of me disappeared. And I'm going, oh, that's wrong. You know, so I spent the next little while going, is this a fluke? Is this a fluke? And it wasn't a fluke. Now, perhaps if I'd been more rational, this would have made sense, but my mother had been diagnosed with macular degeneration, and I knew that by the time she died, she was practically blind. I'm, I am, uh, I am scared out of my mind that I'm going this direction. Uh, and so, yeah, that was. I thought that was an alarming experience. However, because I was so afraid, and because I was an idiot, you can choose either one. Um, I didn't go to the doctor right away because I didn't want to know what he was going to say. You know, my mother certainly never got better. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, man. So it took me a while to go to the doctor to get it checked out. Did you finally go see a doctor at the end of the summer? I did. And what did the doctor tell you was happening with your eyes? Well, it was not that quite that straightforward. One doctor sent me to another doctor who sent me to another doctor who sent me to another doctor. And finally he said, you have a macular hole. And so my left eye has, let me do a demo here, which will not show up, but it, the back of your eye looks like this, and there's a, uh, a divot here that runs down, I think it's the ocular nerve. Well, what happens is when you have a macular hole, it gets worse and worse. It doesn't get better. And so he recommended surgery for me. Okay. Uh, what happened when you showed up for surgery? <sighs> Another little exciting moment in my life. Uh, I showed up for surgery. I was with my mother-in-law, Karen Brophy, and uh, they took a blood test and said, you can't have surgery today. Uh, you've got diabetes. So I went home. I went to another doctor who got me on medication for diabetes and finally, finally got to have the surgery by having shots of insulin uh, so that we could get through it. Before you had the surgery, were you nervous that that was going to be a risky surgery for you? Yes. That, you know, I'm, I'm from the generation who believes minor surgery is on someone else. On me, it's major surgery. And I was terrified. And I was terrified not only for me, but I was terrified for uh, Dan as well, you know. I want to stop you for just a second. Mr. Breton, could you show Ms. Brophy uh, Exhibit 203? Uh, and could you maybe, uh, do you recognize Exhibit 203? I do. 
I what do. is that? That is what's been known in this case as the Dearest Dan letter. When did you write that? In the middle of the night. Uh, I got up because I thought, if I don't come home, Dan doesn't know where stuff is. You know, I'm the keeper of the stuff. And Dan doesn't even know what we have. Now, we haven't paid for all this stuff all these years to have him leave it on the table. And he needs to be protected as much as anybody else in this. And I thought if I could write it out for him clearly and tell him how I felt at the same time that he would have a basis to start with, you know? Let me ask you about, in the third paragraph of that letter, it says, mm -hmm. I saw Larry Schneider mm -hmm. and realized how difficult it would be for you if I died in surgery. Mm -hmm. More than anything, I'm afraid your life would be worse because you would leave money on the table and help, uh, that would help you get through this period. Mm -hmm. Who's Larry Schneider? He was a client of mine whose wife died unexpectedly, and uh, I had consolidated a lot of their insurance policies. She died before the two-year uh, period was up, and uh, the insurance company slow-walked uh, the, uh, the two-year period. It's not fraud. It's something. It's um, The insurance companies have two years after you purchase the property to, after you purchase the policy, to... Uh, to come back and say, we don't think this is right, you know, you don't get this policy. So if you die after two years, uh, they don't have that right. And people would ask me questions like, well, this policy will cover everything, but if I commit suicide? And I would say, no, if you commit suicide after the two years, now this then... Rabbit hole, I, rabbit, rabbit hole. hole. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, did, did Larry Schneider's wife die during a period of time in which the insurance company could contest the death benefit for her? Yes. Okay. And so during this time period, just before you wrote this letter, were you trying to help Mr. Schneider as he was sorting out? I'd spent many evenings with Mr. Schneider really doing nothing more than being a friend. You know, and I pushed everybody I knew to push to get that insurance, uh, to get the insurance to work. Okay. I want to talk to you about some other parts of this letter. Mm -hmm. um, it looks like you've, you've set out for him the policies that were in place on your own life. Is that right? That's correct. And, uh, and you've given him the policy number, the amount, the, the, and I think there was a phone number there about who to call. Is mm -hmm. that right? That's right. Uh, if you'll scroll down a little bit further, you gave him, some, let me stop right there. You gave him some advice about selling the house. What was that? The one asset that we had was our house. And, uh, and Portland Market being what it was, we had some equity in it. And also we'd lived there at that point for 15, 16 years. Uh, so we had some equity in the house. And uh, so I was giving him my opinion on what he needed to do. I knew Dan well enough to know that he would do what he wanted to do based upon what the circumstances were. But I was giving him my input up front, so if he, you know. Thank you, Mr. Pratt. Go ahead. I think we've gone rabbit hole again. No, that's okay. I, it, that went missing. Oh. Um, 
Did you talk to him in that letter about the need to fix up the yard if he was going to sell the house? Right. Right. And to why is that? Why were you telling him that? Because the backyard had gotten away from us. Uh, he was, uh, he, and I don't know exactly how it happened. Maybe we had a particularly rainy season that got away and we just never got it back. But we also had, you know, this other stuff going on, the medical, uh, the lock, lack of income coming in. And, you know, I think we just lost focus. And so we had gotten away from us. So we knew in order to get the, what the house was worth out of it, we had to clean up the backyard. Okay. The other thing you say there uh, is I understand you think you can live in a tiny house. <laughs> Why did you why did you say that? Well, when Dan and I started talking about we were going to sell the house because it was and we were going to make some adjustments, Dan said, "You know what we could do?" Because we talked part of the problem thing was we talked about subdividing the property, which would make it more valuable. And Dan said, "We could live on the back half and get two, not one, two tiny houses. One I could have and have stuff my stuff everywhere in it, and one that was tidy that you would want to live in." And I thought, Dan, you can't live in a four-bedroom house. You certainly can't live in a, a tiny house. Uh, you know, uh, but we talked about the tiny house situation for quite a while. Okay. And you thought that was a silly idea? I did. Okay, let's scroll down a little further, if we could. I want to get to the part where you talk about your possessions. Can you... I think you have to go back up, if you would, Mr. Breton, to the first page. I can't think of anything I care enough to worry about. Oh, I can't, because, except the wedding crystal and my jewelry. Okay. And uh, so in 2015, were those really the only possessions that you had that you thought really mattered much? They were. Everything else was just stuff. Okay. You and Dan um, made choices early in your marriage. Is that right? It is. Could Dan have Could Dan have taken a job, for instance, as an executive ch chef and made a lot more money? He could have. He uh, could have. There was testimony from the OCI folks saying that they, they I think they got salaries like in the what the fifty to sixty thousand dollar range, and those just never changed over the years. That's true. If Dan had wanted to make money, uh, with his skills and his intelligence, and mm -hmm. uh, and certainly as well known as he was, could he have made a lot of money if he wanted to? He could have. He could have. But it would everything is in life is a trade off, and he would have had to give have given up things that he loved, like the garden. But more than anything else, he loved teaching, and he was good at it. And he was the sort of guy who, when you came out of his his class, you knew you could identify the difference between rosemary and something else. You knew your herbs, you knew your product, and you knew your techniques. Uh, he loved teaching. He he. Uh, he loved helping people who came to him and said, you know, I'm not getting the math on this. Can you show me? Uh, so, so yeah, he could have made a lot more money doing something else. He could have been an executive chef for any number of restaurants in town. But we chose 
we chose happiness over anything else. And so if he's happy and he's not making as much money, that didn't bother us, you know. Uh, I was totally okay with the, what he contributed to the household and uh, the fact he did, wasn't working 80 hours a week to, to bring that money in, that we were together. You know? We're going to get to this in just a minute. I don't want to talk about it now. But you also made some financial choices to do things that were interesting to you rather than make money. I did. And did Dan have any quarrel over that? Not at all. He felt the same way I did. Did the, did the two of you just kind of as a, as, as a married couple prioritize uh, joy or uh, fantastic experiences over things? Mm-hmm. Is that true, even though Dan had lots of things? <laughs> well, yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, that becomes much more apparent when you have a house fire and you realize how little things matter. Uh, but, oh, man, we love to travel together. And that was, you know, we and we were at our best when we traveled together. Uh, we love being together, period. I'm taking you back. I know you are. <laughs> taking you back. I'm taking you back to back between 2014 and 2017 when the financial wheels have come off. Okay. You've had this sudden loss of income. Mm hmm And uh, at the same time, an increase in expenses. Mm hmm Did you think that that was going to cause the economic upheaval that it did? No. No. It was kind of like dominoes. I mean, one fell and then another fell, and you're thinking, really, you can stop falling now, and it didn't. What did you, know? you do in the beginning? What did you do personally to address this upheaval? Did well, you have some Band-Aid solutions? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. The first year was easy to fix. The first year was a very small amount of money, and uh, what we did was I wrote a life insurance policy on Dan, which immediately brought in a couple of thousand dollars. The next thing I did was I borrowed money from an interest-free account that we had life insurance in, and uh, that brought in enough money to get our house payments made, and it didn't cost us anything. Let's talk first about that policy. Okay. That Was that a policy that was taken out in November of 2016? Is that right? That's right. And how much was that policy? Do you remember? 200, 250,000, uh, I think it was 200, and there was some accidental on top of it. And I don't remember which insurance expert, but it was suggested that you could have had a different $200,000 policy that would have cost you less. Yes. Is that true? It's true. Would you have gotten a commission on it? Uh, not the way it was suggested, but I, uh, I wouldn't have gotten a commission, which would have been number one. And number two, it wouldn't have happened as quickly as the policy we chose. What he suggested was that we go through uh, underwriting. And underwriting takes sometimes up to six months to make a policy come. We didn't have six months. We needed it to happen today. We had financial issues, and we were doing it more for the financial issue than we were doing it so we'd have another insurance policy. So uh, we didn't have the time to wait for fully underwritten. Okay, so this brought some a quick influx of cash into your home. It did. Uh, and if you continue to pay the premiums on the or the premiums on that policy for a year, mm -hmm. you'd be able to keep the commission. Mm -hmm. So was it? Was it Kind of like a no-interest loan? That was exactly what it was like. 
Now, let's talk about this other quick mandate that you talked about, the foresters policy. Mm -hmm. um, foresters is a weird kind of policy, right? It is. I shouldn't call it weird. It's just unique. It is unique. And uh, does it have a savings component to it? Yes. You pay a premium. Part of it goes for life insurance. Part of it goes to a savings account. And the savings account at the time we bought it, I believe, was 5.85%. Now, real frankly, if we'd put our money in savings in the bank, we would have gotten somewhere maybe 1% of interest. This gave us 5.85, and it was required savings. You might not have noticed this, but I'm betting you did, that uh, I am not a saver. And so being forced to save helped me. You know, and that was what, what we liked best about that. Also, you can, I can, no, we're no, not going down that rabbit hole. When you, when you put money, when you, when you paid this premium, part right. of it went into the savings account, part of it went toward the life insurance benefit. Exactly. And when we borrowed, we borrowed from the savings account. So you're actually taking money out of your own savings account. That's right. And when you pay that back, do you pay it back with interest? You don't ever have to pay it back. Uh, they don't care. Uh, it's, you know, because you're continuing to have, uh, you're continuing to put more money in each month, uh, but they don't care if you don't pay it back. It doesn't bother them at all. I never got a done letter from them, you know, said, really, you need to pay this back. You're, it was interest-free, and we didn't pay it back. So that was a good band-aid. That was a good band-aid. I want to kind of jump back in time because... I can go down rabbit holes too. I want to talk to you <laughs> I've about. I've trained you well. <laughs> I want to talk to you about uh, the earlier years of your marriage and talk about the financial stability kind of early on. Okay. There was testimony, I think, by Tiffany Couch regarding your 1999 tax return. Mm -hmm. um, after you got out of culinary school, did you start this start a business? I did. And what was its name? Chef de Jour Catering. And in 1997, what what year did you begin? Uh, when did we start? We started in 92. Okay. And did it take a few years before that company started to make money? Yes. You know, they say uh, if you start your own business, it takes five years. And at three and a half years, we could see it. It wasn't there yet, but we could see that this was going to be a money-making thing. Okay. And was it a money-making thing by 1997? Yes, it was. Uh, 97, 98, 99, the year 2000, we made serious money. Uh, and serious enough money that we put $40,000 down out of Chef Du Jour uh, on a house. Uh, now, Dan put down 10000 which was a gift from his parents, but uh, $40,000 of that came from Chef Du Jour. We what? took a... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we took a month-long uh, trip to Asia. And it, in that month-long trip, we took a uh, week-long cooking class in Bangkok at the Oriental Hotel. It was fabulous. Uh, we, that was a time in our lives where we had money and it was comfortable. And, uh, and life is always easy when you don't have any external, you know, issues. You know, it's not can you get through the good times, it's can you get through the bad times. It's true. I want to talk about buying that house. Okay. You said that, that you took 40 grand out of the business mm -hmm. as part of the down payment mm -hmm. and that Dan got 10 from his parents. Mm -hmm. 
uh, to help with the down payment. Mm -hmm. When you first bought that house, were you both on the mortgage? We were. And uh, how did you plan? What was your plan to, between the two of you for covering that mortgage? The mortgage fell to me. Uh, one, I made more money, but two, it made more sense for me to pay the mortgage and for him to pay the other things. Uh, and that's how we worked the, it out. When you first bought that house, you, you were on the mortgage. Were you also on the deed? Yes. Okay. In after 9-11, mm -hmm. what happened to the catering business? Oh, man, I was scrambling, scrambling to keep it together. And I was watching fellow caterers drop like flies. The, I used to joke that the only business worse to be in at that point was to be a florist. Nobody was partying. Nobody, people were putting things off like marriages and things like that. And I mean, I was really working to hold on to it. Uh, and then we had a couple of fortunate things happen, uh, you know, that, that it allowed me to get through the rough period. And, uh, but we tightened our belts and got through it. Well, this period right after 9-11, when it all just kind of uh, becomes difficult and stressful, mm -hmm. is that a period in which you refinanced the house in 2000? Probably. Let me show you. It's been marked as Defendant's Exhibit 205. Was there a time when you had a conversation with Richard Freimark that he sent you this property report? Yes. Okay, and if you'll scroll down, Mr. Breton, you, and you can see that better than I can, Nancy, because those are tiny. Mm -hmm. And if you can keep scrolling down. Stop, stop, stop. Go back, go back, go back. Um, so it shows that in uh, 1996 mm -hmm. that the two of you buy that house. Does that make sense? Or is that 99? I it's can't 99. see it from here. Okay. And, and at that time, both you and Dan are on the deed. Yes. Is that right? And then all of a sudden, Nancy falls off the deed, and now it's just Dan Brophy. Mm-hmm. And that occurs, is that in 2004? Yes. What happened in 2004 that caused you to want to uh, refinance that house? Oh, uh, uh, we were struggling to keep our business together, you know, uh, and uh, while the business may have been in my name, it was our business because Dan was just as involved as I was. So yeah, we refinanced to, uh, to keep from uh, losing the business. Okay. When, when that refinance occurred, that occurred, Dan was the only person on the mortgage? Apparently when we put it back in. Okay. This, was, this was a time where all the mortgages were being stated mortgages. And if we did it with Dan rather than with Dan and Nancy, I didn't have to show our income taxes. And since my income in the past few years had gone like that, we didn't think that was exactly what we wanted to do. So we put Dan on the mortgage because he could show a stable income. Okay. Did you know then in 2004 that you'd fallen off the deed? I didn't know I'd fallen off the deed. No, I thought I wasn't on the note. Okay. After Richard Freimark sent you this property mm -hmm. report uh, and you realized what had happened, did you and Dan then take steps to put you back on the deed? We did. And do you remember about when that happened? Not really. Okay. Uh, 
It sounds like from what you're saying that there were times when um, you, the steadiness of Dan's income got you through various things. It did. You you were self-employed and you had more the famine feast mm -hmm. cycle. Mm -hmm. um, even though you you had these uneven times, did did you two did the two of you still kind of separate? Uh, responsibilities where you you would be primarily responsible to cover that mortgage. Mm -hmm. And did that continue even after Dan was the only person on the mortgage? Yes. So what would happen then? How would that happen that this mortgage would get paid? Well, I would uh, put a deposit into Dan's account and he had a Wells Fargo account and then we could just slip the money from from his account right into our mortgage account. Okay. <laughs> So Ms. Couch testified that when she looked at things, maybe from 2016 on to mm -hmm. 2018, that she could see where this money moved. Right. Was that just always the case, that that money would move from one account to another? Mm-hmm. Did you eventually sell Chef de Jour? I did. When was that? 2005 or 2006. In I think it was six. Okay. And by then, did the company have some debt? Yes. A lot? Yes. Were you able to, did you use the proceeds from that? You didn't go bankrupt, though. No, no, no. Were you able to use the proceeds from that sale to, to pay off that debt? Uh, we paid off a large portion of the debt. So after you sold your company, what did you do to make a living? Uh, <laughs> I worked for Typhoon Restaurants for a while. Uh, and then we were skirting to, I'd signed a five-year non-compete, and we were skirting with the non-compete uh, because Typhoon wanted to open catering. And it, it really was close on whether or not I was living up to the terms of my agreement when I sold it. And so in the end, I had a guy who called me one night, and I thought it was a headhunter. And he said, uh, and I was pretty casual because I wasn't, I hadn't really had a plan. And he said, I'd like you to come in for an interview tomorrow. And I hung up the phone and I had to Google to find out what it was. And I said, to Dan, I said, I have a job interview tomorrow. And he goes, with whom? And I said, selling insurance. And he said, do you want to sell insurance? I said, no. And he said, why are you going to the interview? And I said, because I committed. And uh, so I went to the interview, you know. And that was how I shifted into selling insurance. Did you have modest success selling insurance? I, yeah, some years were better than others. Okay. Did you like selling life insurance? No. No. I didn't like selling life insurance at all. Was it hard? Yes, but it was... When you're selling something that is intangible, like insurance versus something that's tangible like big screen color TV. People can see the need for the big screen color TV a lot faster than they can see the need for life insurance. And so sometimes they made choices that I would think, but it was hard. Your niece, your niece Susan described the two of you actually going and knocking on people's doors. We did, uh, but it wasn't, code calling, knocking. I mean, we had something that they would have sent in that said they were interested. Okay. Uh, and so uh, we could, and you know, you call people up and say, I got your form that said you were interested. And they'd say, oh, I didn't send a form in. And you just say, yeah, pretty much you did. And uh, so a lot of times it was easier to knock on the door and say, see your signature? Is this your signature? Okay, here I am. 
let's make an appointment for when we can come back. And you didn't have to argue the, really, I didn't sign anything and send it in. I don't know why you have my name and number. You know. So when, when Susan described you guys getting in the car and traveling all around the state, like to the coast and all these other places, and going and just knocking on doors, mm -hmm. was that what it was like to sell life insurance? It, there, you, it was a hard scrabble. So, yes. And um, if you sold a policy, if you're lucky enough to have someone remember that they signed the form and then actually was willing to make another appointment for you to come back to talk mm -hmm. about insurance, and then you were actually lucky enough to get them to say, yeah, I'll buy that policy. I'd like to think there was more skill than luck in that, but okay. yes. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, but you sell the policy and uh, you go away and then like, Three months later, they go, you know, why the heck did we buy this policy? What happens then? Uh, we're not going to die. Uh, yeah. Uh, what happens then is they call the company. They say, we don't want this policy anymore. And the company notifies us. Hopefully, uh, some of the companies notify you. Let me be clear here and say, you have an opportunity to save this policy and you might go back out and see them or you might call them and you might talk to them. Uh, however, some companies just said, oh, by the way, you had this fall apart and therefore you owe us uh, this many thousand dollars. So you'd have to pay the commission back? You would. And when you got paid a commission, did you get paid the whole commission or did the <clears throat> company hold some back? Uh, you got paid nine months of the commission. Uh, three months were held back the last three months of the year, uh, so that uh, which was kind of what was known as the bucket. Uh, and so you had money in the bucket all the time. So if the company suddenly says you owe this many thousand dollars, they have something to take it out of, you know. Did that cause, I, and I don't know the answer, but Ms. Estrada has suggested that that didn't really cause a lot of cash flow bumps, maybe because of the bucket. But did you experience cash flow bumps because of that commission payback? No. Susan and I were a good team. And uh, we were a good team together, and uh, so we pushed each other to uh, continue. You know, sometimes being self-motivated is hard, and but together we managed to keep things rolling, and we never had big bumps in our insurance uh, when we were working together. So how often could you sell a couple of insurance policies to the same clients? Oh, that's not unusual. Okay. Uh, it used to be, to give you an example, you, we've all heard of double indemnity. And double indemnity is, okay, you've got this policy. If you die in an accident, you get double the money. Insurance companies quit doing that. They may say, oh, you get 25000 something like that. But what they really did was encourage you to have a second accidental policy so that you could say to somebody, hey, this covers you for any cause of death, but for really only a few dollars more, uh, as you saw in my figures, Dan and I were both covered for 250000 for 67 bucks a month. Let me stop you. Am I rambling on? I had a different question, but that's okay. Oh, sorry. If you want to finish that answer, you can, but we're going to come back if it's okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm so sorry. No. I, I'm rambling. Uh, but so they encourage you to do that. So that would be an opportunity where you would sell at the same time uh, two policies, but you might actually come back to them later and sell them a different policy in addition. Okay. I'm sorry. We're, I'm but to so keep sorry. making money off of life insurance sales, did you need to keep finding fresh bodies? Yes. 
need to keep buying leads. Yes. You need to keep knocking on new doors. Yep. You needed to keep finding new people willing to admit that they signed the form. Yeah. And let you in their house. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you imagine going door to door like that and knocking on doors into your late 60s and 70s? No. What, as you and Dan are trying to figure out your solution to this financial right. uh, pinch, we'll call it a financial sure. pinch, uh, let me ask you this, was it unnerving? The pinch? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this was the worst that my part of the finances had ever been. Uh, most of the time, you know, I'm basically a hard worker and I worked. Uh, so this was the worst it had ever been. And uh, and it seemed like a lot of things were changing. Suddenly we're looking at retirement. Suddenly we're looking at uh, the things that maybe we have been able to skirt along. One of the things, well, I'm not going to look at her when I tell you this because she'll say I'm going down another rabbit hole. Uh, but one of the things I heard about our gen my generation of people is that we all believe we're 14 years younger than we are. So when we get to retirement, we go, how did this happen? Uh, and so, yeah, there was lots of things we had really not taken seriously that we should have uh, that got us there. Were, was Dan worried about whether you're going to be able to keep the house during this period? No. Were you? No, no. Both of us knew we had we had the availability to if we needed to turn to family. We had the availability if we need to to both of us take another job. There were things we could have done to make this work. Losing the house was never part of the plan. You know, it was never even something that we got close to. You know, we always knew even in 2017, when I went a month longer than I thought we were going to go, we knew we had a, had worked through how we were going to do that. Okay. So sometime after your eye surgery and as you're bumping into the 2017 period, did you and Dan sit down and try to come up with a more comprehensive plan to take you into the future? Yes, we did. Um, what was your plan for making money for you? Well, in this, I guess I'm going to tell you my in-laws saved me on this. They came to me and said, hey, we want to look at Medicare. Can you help us with this? And so I looked at, and I had other clients as well who were changing. You know, they like you. They're buying policies from you. They want to have your opinion on this. And so the first year that they did this, that they said, hey, we need help. And I said, hey, let me get trained so I can do it. I rushed down and took Medicare training so that I could do it. So I wrote 12 policies that year uh, where I was scrambling to do it. Sure. About 1045. Let's, let's take our morning break and resume at 11. Where were we? You were talking about Medicare. Um, oh, and, and I'm sorry. Uh, if, if you want, Ms. Brophy, you can take your mask back off. Oh, thank you. I think you were testifying that you kind of stumbled into Medicare because your mother-in-law and your father-in-law needed some help. Yes. And what year was that 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 happened? 
That would have been uh, 2015. Okay. And you, you probably already testified to this, but how many policies did you sell? That year? 12. Okay. So 10 more than your in-laws. Right. How did it come to be that you were able to sell the other 10? Uh, because some of my clients were older and going into it, and they called me, you know, okay. and said, what do you know about this? Can you help us? Okay. Does a life insurance license, a license to sell life insurance, um, also allow you to sell health insurance? Yes. And so is that how you're able to sell Medicare with your life insurance license? That's how you're elig eligible to be able to sell. Okay. Uh, but but they won't let you sell Medicare with that. You have to take, uh, you have to take a, a specific Medicare test. You have to, for every Medicare provider, you have to take their qualification test. And uh, so it is, you spend a month to six weeks every year uh, uh, getting prepared. And I, I'm trying to, I'm imagining there are a number of different Medicare products or yes. different companies that sell Medicare products. Yes. Um, and would, if you work for company A, could you sell company B, C, D's products or just company A's? No. You could sell B, C, and D if you took B, C, and D's qualifying uh, test, which meant that you had passed the initial test uh, and then they had their own version of it, which was essentially like training you on their product. Okay. But in 2015, did you have um, both the licensing and kind of the company's leeway to sell any Medicare policy? No. No. I was really limited in what I could sell in 2015. Uh, but by the time 2016 came around, that had expanded greatly. Okay. Well, before we get into the difference, the different years, I want you to, to describe the advantage of selling Medicare over selling life insurance. Well, if you sell a life insurance policy, you get a big hunk of money, which you may have to pay back if they don't uh, keep the policy. Medicare doesn't work like that. One, it's complicated. Two, the people are all over 65, and they are not eager to change 18 times. There's not a huge, significant difference between each policy. There are some reasons to have a different type of policy, but once you've determined that, there's nobody's offering a better deal. It's really uh, regulated a lot by the government. So people don't change that much. They find something they like. They find something that works. And uh, and you keep up with them and you check in with them every year. Here's the magic about Medicare. You don't get that much money for selling a Medicare policy. You can sell, you know, a policy till the cows come home. But every if I sell 12 policies in 2015 and I sell, I think, 36, 50, 50 maybe in uh, 2016, in 2016, not only, in tw actually it's 2017 because you don't get paid till the next year, uh, but you get the money in, from 2016 all over again plus 2017. In 2018, now if you haven't lost anybody, you get 2016, 2017, 2018, so money will all come in in 2019. So you can see if you worked hard for even a short period of time, like five to six years, 
you could have a retirement income that would continue on and on and on. And this was like a light coming on over our heads. We said, look at this. We have a retirement income if we do this right. So, for example, you could have $100,000 a year coming in in retirement if you work for probably about 10 years and you worked hard. This is not a question of you, you sailed through. I mean, you work hard during that period to pick that kind of money up. But eventually you have a book of clients that would carry you through. Yes. As long as you made the minimal effort of taking care of them, making a call, and making sure things happen the next year. Right. Okay. Um, and I think you said that in 2000, we, did we start in 2015? We did. And you sold 12 policies. Mm -hmm. What happened in 2016? I'm trying to remember the number of policies I sold. It's... Uh, I want to say 50, but it could have been less than that. But in 2017, when we figured out how this worked, and Dan and I had come up with the plan, I and I figured out enough about Medicare that I wasn't fumbling in the dark. I sold 120 policies. I was considered one of the outstanding salespeople with United Healthcare, who was operating with them, and they told me this on a regular basis because I sold that many policies. And it wasn't that hard. You just had to commit to things. What, I was, did, uh, what did you have to do to sell those policies? We heard about kiosks because I keep talking about them. Right. Tell us about a Medicare kiosk. Well... I'm trying to remember how many days a week it was, but it, it ended up being a total of six days a week. I was in a Fred Myers uh, kiosk in uh, Oregon City. In McMinnville, I was in a Walgreens kiosk. Uh, I occasionally had picked up other kiosk uh, short-term visits. So what you do is you cannot go and approach somebody in the grocery store and say, hey, you look like your Medicare age. You want to talk to me? That's not done. You sit there at the kiosk, and if somebody walks by and says, you know, my mother-in-law's on this, you can start a conversation. And as you can see, when I told you I was chatty, I'm chatty. This is an ideal situation for me. People walk by, and they chat, and sometimes we talk about books. Sometimes we talk about other things. But I can talk to a stranger. And so it, for me, it was just like, and you sat in a kiosk and they came to you. It wasn't like you had to go and knock on a door. Uh, now, other places, and I, I was with Providence, and, I, uh, and that's who I'm thinking of first, and also uh, United Healthcare would have these people who called in and said, we need information. And yeah, they all had in-house salespeople. But a lot of times they would have what known, do what was known as a blitz, and they would invite you in, and you got to call these lists of people. And sometimes that would result in seven to ten policies. A lot of it was, uh, a lot of it was you had to just keep working. Uh, you know, you had to keep. Uh, you hang up the phone and you call the next person and you talk to them long enough to see if they really have a question. And sometimes you went out and saw people who you knew weren't going to buy another policy from you, but you went out just to solve their Medicare problems. Let me ask you this. These phone yeah, blitzes, you're calling calling through people. You can't sell a Medicare policy over the phone, can you? You could. You could? I, I would think it would be bad, but you could. Okay. People need to be able to know what they buy, and particularly with Medicare. So typically... As you called through these people, if you found someone that was interested, you would actually go out to their home? Mm -hmm. Where were these homes? Everywhere. Uh, everywhere. Uh, 
mainly I would tell you they were, but you kind of got to pick. You had call lists from various places. Like occasionally I called Salem. Uh, but I tried not to get too far out into the boonies. Uh, but I went to the coast. I went to Vernonia. I went to, uh, I'm coming back this way, uh, Oregon City and all those little towns around Oregon City like Estacada, uh, Malala, all those places. Uh, down in uh, McVinville, there's Sheridan. There's uh, all of these places around there that you you call and you say, uh, you know, I'm in your area, and they would say, great, and you would come to see them. So would it sometimes be that you'd do a phone blitz in the morning and find yourself out in Estacada or Malala mm -hmm. in the afternoon meeting mm -hmm. with the client that you'd called earlier? Yes. Okay. So that, it sounds like the upside of Medicare is that you can build up this book of clients that if you take care of them well, will carry you, will provide an income stream all the way into your 80s. Right. How old are most of the people who sell Medicare? Oh, I'm young. I, when we go to a Medicare meeting of people who sell Medicare, I'm the young one in the room. And it's uh, generally men, so there's not a ton of women. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, uh, they're older. Uh, I would say old, but I'd have to include myself there as well, and so we won't go there. Uh, so so it was. It, you have this <laughs> job that you can do into your older age that you can, uh, you could also just take the book of clients that you've developed over five years, hold steady, and just take care of those clients. You could. But if you wanted to, you could just continue doing what you're doing, heading out to kiosks and phone blitzes and build your book uh, into yes. your 70s. You could, and beyond, uh, and beyond. I, I saw men who easily had to have been 85 to 90 who were still out working it. And the problem with just letting your book sit is you end up with the law of diminishing returns. And so people die, people change, you know, so you have to keep pumping air into the balloon to keep it up. Okay. So, so what's the downside to Medicare, selling Medicare? It is a very short window. 90% of the policies written on Medicare are written between October 15th and December 7th. That's when you get all those <coughs> repetitive ads on TV and you, and you just pray for Medicare season to be over so you don't have to see Joe Namath one more time. Uh, but what I can tell you is that is the downside and that is also the upside. As retirement income, you're only working six months out of the year to create this. And, uh, you know, you don't have to, uh, uh, you don't have to work uh, 365 days a year or whatever it breaks down to with weekends and holidays. Well, is there another disadvantage, like when you get paid? Oh, major disadvantage. Okay. Uh, so you go out October 1st, because you have a two-week prep time. You go out October 1st, you're lining up appointments, you're doing what you can do. Uh, you work like a dog through uh, uh, through Thanksgiving and into December the 7th. Uh, and so in the following January, your money starts to trickle in. So you've now worked since October 1 to uh, the end of the year, 
and you've got not one dime. What you did, but in January, it starts to trickle in, and it trickles in January and February. But I've had it trickle in as late as, I'm sorry, as late as um, April. So it's a real cash flow crunch, you know, and you have to be prepared for that. And that was kind of what caught us up in 17, was that we knew it was going to happen. You just really aren't prepared to work as hard as you're working and realize you have no money coming in and you have to figure out a way around that. The Dan, you said you had to be prepared for a cash flow crunch. Mm -hmm. Had the two of you talked about and thought you were prepared? That was when our program really started coming together. Yes, we had talked about it. And yes, we came up with a solution that we hoped would work. But it really wasn't until the Medicare season had ended that we thought, yeah, this happened, and it's happened the way we planned it to happen, and we can see that the light at the end of the tunnel is not another train. So, Well, here you're having this happy time, and your house is almost in foreclosure. So what's that about? Uh, okay, so let's go back to what the plan was. Uh, the plan was pretty simple. Uh, I was going to start taking uh, Medicare myself. That eased up a couple hundred dollars out of Dan's employment benefits uh, every month because I'm now paying for a different source. Okay, we, we're going to take a loan out of his 401k, which we had done before and paid back, and we were going to take a loan to make up house payments and just get us started on getting the house ready to sell. Uh, did you when did you when did you take out this before before we talk about the loan I okay. want to talk about one other thing that changed the other thing that changed wasn't just your income right the other thing that changed was Dan's income right and what was that a friend of ours Tanya Medlin needed a uh weekend chef and at that point uh uh she needed somebody who could get food out on time in a reasonable error that tasted good. And she said, do you think Dan's got any students? And I Did said- Did you say weekend? At that point, he was working days. Okay. Uh, and I said, you know, Dan would probably look into it. And she said, you're kidding. I said, no. Uh, and I went home and Dan said, sure. And so for the first time in several years, Dan has a job where he's actually cooking. And he likes it because he actually gets to cook for somebody other than me. Not that I'm not appreciative audience, but but this appeals to him. So And would would uh, Ms. Medlin give Dan some of the better shifts? Yes, yes, we were very lucky. Uh, Tanya would say, come and work Christmas Eve and it was more money. Work Christmas morning and it was a lot more money. And we rearranged our schedule to hit the uh, high money times. What did you guys agree to do with the extra income that Dan was bringing in? We had credit card debt, and Dan, and we also had we had three things we were worried about. We didn't have house uh, car payments, but we had credit card debt for two uh, credit cards, and we had a second lien on the house. And Dan was paying those off, and you could see it happening in uh, that woman's testimony that she could see how we went from having 20000 to down to almost nothing in the period of about a year. 
You know? And that's what the Avamir income did for you? That's what the Avamir income did for us. And if Dan had, had stayed alive and was able to continue working at Avamir, when did you think he would be completely out of this credit card debt and the second mortgage debt? Oh, we would have been out of that. Uh, it might have taken till December. But our second, the second mortgage debt, we planned to take care of when we sold the house. So the, that part would have probably been a little faster. Okay. And now you started on down a rabbit hole, and I can't remember which rabbit hole I stopped. <laughs> we were talking oh. about what was the plan. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so part of the plan was to reduce your debt. Yep. Part of the plan was for you to make more money selling Medicare, mm -hmm. and hopefully to withstand the uh, cash flow crunch. Mm -hmm. Part of the plan was for Dan to make more money working at Avamir. Yes. And you know we've talked about this as a plan, but it sounds to me like much of this you've just sort of stumbled into. Uh, yes, I would say uh, we had the plan. Okay. Where it probably started was with the 401, uh, it was with the loan from his 401k, but the rest of it kind of blossomed around that. Okay. Uh, so that we had, um, uh, the, you know, I, it, Dan knew that the credit card debt was going to kill us. And so he, you know, you can only sustain, sustain so much interest. And so that was really his first, uh, his first concern was let's get rid of debt. Uh, my first concern is let's also get the house ready to be sold because that was our major asset. And uh, in addition, let's figure out how we're going to have an income in the future. And that turned out to be Medicare. Okay. So this 401k loan that you've just uh -huh. described, Mm -hmm. You took that out in September of 2017. That sounds about right. And at the time you were behind on your mortgage, what about eight grand? Mm -hmm. Somewhere between eight and nine thousand mm dollars. -hmm. I can't remember. Does that sound right? That sounds right. But Dan took out a loan for thirty-five thousand dollars against that 401k. Mm -hmm. Why take out that extra money from his 401k when you're only behind eight thousand dollars? Well, we did it so we could get the house ready to sell. We knew we were going to have to invest some money in that backyard to get it back to where it could sell, and uh, and we knew it wasn't going to be cheap. There were also little things the house needed, you know, a touch-up paint job, you know, stuff that uh, we thought we could do, uh, but but we thought the thirty-five thousand would would uh, cover that. And our plan was he was now making these payments of five hundred dollars a month. But it wasn't really $500 a month because I had pulled out my insurance out of it. So it was really more like $300 a month he was making to pay it back. Uh, and uh, uh, and then we were... Um, oh, I lost my thought. That, that's okay. Let me take you back. Sure. Thank you. So you took out this loan for $35,000. Right. You took the loan for $35,000 out of Dan's 401k. We did. And we called it Dan's 401k, but did you guys ever consider your, this is my money, this is Dan's money? No, that was our 401k. Okay. And, and while it doesn't look like I contributed as much, keep in mind, I'm making house payments on a house that has serious equity in it. So I see it, in my thinking, is that I'm contributing to our retirement in the house uh, in making the house payments and having equity in the house, and Dan's contributing to our retirement by having for a 401k. Okay. 
So at least in September of 2017, when Dan takes the loan against his 401k, mm -hmm. it sounds like Dan is in agreement that you guys need to get the house ready to sell because okay. he actually borrowed money to do it. He is. He is. And I think, you know, not everything in life is clear in terms of how you feel about something. Very seldom do you feel 100% about anything one way or the other. And I think Dan wavered back and forth on this because I think he loved the house, he loved the yard, but the excitement of, I have a new yard that I can rethink the plan on. Because for life, for Dan, I mean, his motto was life is a science project. And uh, uh, if somebody says life is a science project, that means that once they've kind of at least worked their way through this science project, they're willing to go on to a new one. And that is really how I thought he saw it. Let me stop you for just a second. Sure. Before you ever took out this loan, mm -hmm. had you and Dan had a, the two of you had a conversation with Richard Freimark? We had. And uh, was that about subdividing your property? It was. Uh, what did you learn about subdividing the property? Uh, well, I learned that our we live in a unique neighborhood. So our neighborhood is unincorporated Washington County. And what that means is we don't have curbs, we don't have street lights, but we have large lots. And not only did we have large lots, so did all of our neighbors. So the neighbor just north to us had subdivided their property into three. The neighbor further down the road was in the process of subdividing their property. Uh, we, it, it, there were, you don't have houses. I can help you with a picture. Oh, what about good. that? Hey. Can, I, can <laughs> we show Ms. Brophy exhibit 330, please, Mr. Britton? Oh, this is good. What is that? This is our neighborhood. Can, it, can I gesture? Sure. You might have to stand up. I may have to unplug, too. Uh, okay. So, this is our house right here. Can you show me where your house is right there? Okay. Right there. And this is 108th. At the end of this road, with the little jogging, is Walker Road. At the end of this road is Canyon Road, to give you an idea of where we are. 217 is right over here. So we are on the east side of 217, which also makes it desirable. Don't fall down, Nancy. So this is our house. Now, the house to the north of us is this house, which was there just like this when we moved in. Then they subdivided this and built this house. So the people who owned they sold this house. The people who owned all the lots at one point or another were these people. They got a job somewhere else and sold this lot in the middle to these people. Further down, and you can't really see it, but there's another subdivision here. It's an interesting neighborhood, which you can't see, but it's an interesting neighborhood because everybody has chickens or alpacas. They're like little farms right in this area. Uh, Where so are the alpacas? The alpacas are right back here. And that... So Ms. Alba, Ms. Alba really was feeding alpacas? She was. She thought she was feeding llamas, but yeah. Uh, so that property is an interesting property because it runs like here. When she said it was five to six acres, she was exaggerating, but she was right from the standpoint it's bigger than all of our lots. And they have alpacas. And this house at one point or another had been a... Uh, a house where you could rent rooms 
for something. It was like, you know, a retreat place. Uh, but you can see how this is, this is just a unique neighborhood for Portland. And we love this neighborhood. You know, we'd lived there for 20 years. We knew all the uh, neighbors. We took Christmas cookies to all the neighbors. Uh, so I'm looking at your property, though. And okay. Your property looks like it's all cleared out. Was that was that photograph taken while you were living there? No. This was after we were, this was after it had been sold. Uh, and we felt, because our property, our house extends back slightly than this house, that what we wanted to do was rip out the garage, bring the driveway all the way back, and not divide it into three, but divide it into two pieces of property so that everybody had an adequate yard. Okay. Can you sit, or you, or you got more to say? No, I just... <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I can sit. Okay. I didn't mean it that way. It sounded bad. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I'll ask you to roll That's over in a minute. Okay. Um, so that was kind of, that's what your thinking was regarding subdivision. That was. And had, had, a, uh, had one of your neighbors who was just a resident, you know, Mr. Freimark's a commercial realtor. He is. Um, had one of your neighbors who was, had some residential real estate experience looked at the property? They had. And after getting all this input from other people, did you, did you have, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but did you have a notion about what, how much more you could sell that property for if you got it? if you had it not subdivided, so to speak, but ready to be subdivided? Right. And how much more could you make? We expected it to sell in the neighborhood of 700 plus thousand. Okay. If you, if you were able to do all that. Right. Were you going to be able to do any of that with the state of the backyard or the back lot? Not at all. That absolutely had to be uh, dealt with. And, and even though we talk about the backyard, it creeped to the side yards as well. It, um, um, you know, it was the yard needed work. Okay. Was that something that we know that Dan's really, you know, that he loves being outdoors, that he loves being in gardens. At this point, he's what, 63 going on 64. Um, would he have been able to do that? Uh, he wouldn't have been able to do the bulk of the work. Uh, I, uh, but but he would have been able to continue to garden uh, in an area that was cleaned up. Okay, but could he have cleaned up that property so that it could be sold? No. Did he know that? Yes. Uh, we discussed several options. One of the options we discussed was bringing in goats to get rid of our blackberries. And we looked into that quite seriously for several weeks and decided against that. Uh, and so then we started looking for who turned out to be the yard warriors. Okay. Throughout this trial, there's been a suggestion that Dan maybe didn't know that there was a plan to sell, or maybe Dan wasn't in favor of a plan to sell, or maybe Dan had decided not to sell. Um, was your, you said your house was your primary asset. It was. Was it also your primary debt? Yes, it was. And how long do you think it would take to pay off that mortgage, the mortgage that you had on the house, if you didn't sell the house? We would have been, I would have been my 80s, and he would have been in his late 70s. Okay. Was, did it seem reasonable to either one of you that you would keep working at the pace that you were working uh, 
in 2017, 2018, that, that patient you were working when you were 80 or in your 80s and Dan was in his late 70s? No. If one of you got sick while the mortgage was still due, uh, would the other one have been able to carry the mortgage by themselves? It would have been incredibly difficult. Okay. You have a degree in economics. I do. But it, it wouldn't require a, de a degree in economics to know that, that selling the house and downsizing was a reasonable choice. Yes, but there was also, that is, that is absolutely true. And you didn't have to have a degree in economics, nor did you have to be able to teach math. Everybody in the family could figure out where, what was going wrong with our plan. But our plan had been built in from the very beginning. When we looked at the house and we bought it, uh, I was 49. I was 49, and we have a flight of stairs that goes from the first floor to the second floor, and a flight of stairs that goes from the first floor to the basement. And we knew, with a history of... Um, medical issues in our family, uh, we knew that we would not have been able to keep this house in the old age. We talked about that in 1999 because of the flights of stairs and the fact that it was not set up for uh, people who uh, uh, who in their 80s would be climbing those stairs. And they were narrow stairs because it had originally been attic stairs. Okay, so the house, just the, the structure of the house itself was going to create um, challenges in old age. Mm -hmm. But my question to you is, you said that, yeah, if Dan could do the math, mm -hmm. did, did Dan do the math? Dan did the math. 